Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we emphatically discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are, I want to say, this is part of the episode, I want to say that I was thinking this before it was explicitly said at the end. A lot of my notes were about this. Okay. Novelizations are homages to one specific moment in pop culture, the concurrent book-film development of 2001 A Space Odyssey. These books not only mimic that book's prose, but also build upon their extraterrestrials in a similarly robust manner, while cunningly explaining technology that is alien to an audience that exists in actual reality, though not technically alien to the characters who exist in our world in the fictional reality. It's cumbersome, but it makes sense. Novelizations have a rare, coveted quality. The ability to convey complex, technical information without boring an audience beyond tears. And somehow, to actually make it downright thrilling. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. The Abyss. And I'm... Just kidding. There's, there's not a third. It's person. just us. <laughs> Should have thrown. I my mean, voice. even when it's just us and a guest who isn't here today, it's still just. My name is Andrew Overby, and I'm Hannah Blackburn. Like, we're oh, you don't think hosts. that the you don't think that the listener can feel the unheard presence, the unseen presence of the guest? Um, not always at this point. No. Our guests are increasingly people that I don't actually know that I just messaged. And I, I think that you can tell in my intro that I'm like, I really hope this guy likes me. <laughs> well, sometimes we all have invisible overwatchers judging us and our value to not only Earth, but the universe at large, like a guest on a podcast. Anyway, I'm Hannah Blackman, and The Abyss is a 1989 science fiction realm. Give me, let me do it again. You cut off my rhythm, man, and now I'm feeling No, you're good. I got again. one of the, like, worst sores in my mouth right now. Oh, no. It's just fucking killing me. Barely when talking. Swish with salt water. Oh, I have been. <laughs> I even made the salt water a little too hot. It hurt real bad. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's, it's mostly bad for eating. Anyway. Oh, anyway. Tell us okay. about The Abyss. The Abyss is a 1989 science fiction film. Directed by James Cameron. It follows a crew of 
It follows the crew of the deep sea oil rig Deep Core 2 as they are commandeered by the U.S. government in an attempt to reach a downed submarine before Russian forces can seize upon its secrets and its nuclear weapons. A dangerously heterogeneous mixture, the group of corporate hands and marine boots soon find that their agendas, morals, and fists will clash. And maybe everybody has pressure sickness. Not everybody, just one guy. And maybe, just maybe, some characters once torn asunder will find their way back as they teeter on the precipice of the Cayman Truff slash the titular abyss. Mmm. Mmm. It's not pronounced Truff, and I know that. I just think it's funny. It's My, it was a, a shock to me that this movie called The Abyss, which I knew was like an underwater thing. In fact, I had like a uh, script that I had only written like a couple pages of maybe 10 years ago that was about something very similar and people were like you That's need to abyss. watch the abyss you have to stop <laughs> thinking these thoughts uh i was i was shocked to see that unlike my script this was not the fucking mariana's trench no it's the cayman truff the truff <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna stick with it the whole episode like the ten dollar hot sauce that's how we're pronouncing it truff is that truff. a hot sauce oh cool. yeah you'll well, see it I'm everywhere now that i said it the cayman I was like, I'm going to say it right, and then I just couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) The novelization of The Abyss was written by Orson Scott Card, based on a screenplay by James Cameron, and also on like a lot of videotapes, it seems like. Mm -hmm. It was released by Pocket Books in 1989. Oh, you're seeing all my actual notes from the book? I've never scrolled down that far. They're always right there. They're not always bolded. Usually I've like only <laughs> bolded the ones I really want to talk about, but I guess I really want to talk about all of them. I know how you feel. The, the, the Just going to stop for a second to say, love the book. One of my favorites. Currently have it at time of recording, ranked as my second favorite novelization we've ever read. And I'm just going to leave it at this. Thank God I stopped doing the author bios. Thank fucking God. Yeah, we don't want to talk about Orson Scott Card that much. Hey, look, he wrote a great book. It's really good. And Mm -hmm. that's that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. I mean, we simply must acknowledge that more than any book we have ever read, this book has afterwards by the director and the author of the book discussing the process, the interaction they had, and what their goals were for writing this. Like, we have an unprecedented sort of in-book insight to what this book was meant to be and the terms upon which it was created. I think this is a great place to start at the end with the with the afterwards. Thank you. James Cameron's begins, so it says, afterward, James Cameron. Mm-hmm. A novel based on a screenplay? The term seems precious in our jaded business. Huh? Yeah, it's pretty rude. I'm not even well, I'm not even really clear what he means by that. It's obviously negative. What does he mean the term seems precious? Like cute, I think is what he means. Okay. There like, are screenplays uh... based on I'm almost gonna read the whole thing. There are yeah, screenplays yeah. based on novels, certainly. Our vampiric industry drains much of its unholy creative sustenance from pure literature. And there are novelizations of screenplays. The studios encourage these literary endeavors. The pages provide filler behind the covers. And the imperative is to display those flashy covers at supermarkets and newsstands throughout the land. So so Cameron and Card both engage in this. 
which is they are like this is this is like the 1989 version of uh people making television shows that are really quality and being like it's like a movie but we stretched it out it's kind of like an eight eight hour movie it's like an eight hour movie and then also just a side note um you know like showa showa's like an eight hour movie but our movie's in our episodes instead like i would never stoop to making television so i (laughs) didn't but this might appear to be television but it's not i promise it's a movie my parents were born in 1938 and they called the television the boob tube and that's too imprinted on me for me to change (laughs) i mean i i want to flag i do think this is a rude concept of novelizations then james cameron goes down to say the fact that someone might actually read these novelizations seems to be a little concern well people do read them i read them which won me back over okay but it's a, so here's here's the thing about these two guys though because we get the mm-hmm. afterwards from cameron and the afterwards from card they both have the same opinion which is like novelizations wow what a shitty little sub industry except the way i do it <laughs> And, <laughs> yes. you know, they're existing in their minds in reaction to this thing that's really bad. And, you know, it. I, I think the other parallel is, like, this is like people saying, oh, this is elevated horror. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, a, a, a really earned comparison. I feel like Jordan Peele yelling at those people like he did that one time to be like, just call it horror. Horror is good. Yeah. Everything can be good or bad. Yeah, slightly later, James Cameron says, film into novel, a new form. And I was like, ah, no, you lost me again, you fucking asshole. And I'm a big fan of Jim Cameron. I'm here for him. But like, sir, you're not creating the wheel. This does have actual basis in history, as I I sort of alluded to in in the intro, which is that there was a thing that happened... With 2001 A Space Odyssey, which which Orson Scott Card goes into a little bit because he's so obsessed with making himself the Arthur C. Clarke of this story, Mm -hmm. where what really happened is like Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick had an ongoing dialogue about this story from very early on in the process. And so Clarke's thoughts really heavily influenced uh, Kubrick's movie and Kubrick's movie really heavily influenced the book. So there's an argument to be made that that book, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which as a child I did read before the movie, that there's an argument to be made that that is not a novelization because it's this sort of like twin text. A concurrently formed piece of art. Absolutely. However, that's not what this book is. No, not at all. And and, like, and and Card wants so badly for us to be like, this is that same scenario. This is a, no- a novelization of a film and, and a really, really good one. Yes. Terrifically good. I mean, but not the best one we've ever read. Mm-mm. And just like, get off your high horse. I agree. He also like, he spends all this time being like, you know, Jim and I, I wouldn't do it if I wasn't going to be working with Jim every day. And then towards the end of his introduction, he reveals... He was not at all working with Jim every day. Uh, Jim Cameron was busy making this movie. And occasionally someone else on set would be like, how's it going, Orson? And they would like share notes. But it was not this like, Orson Scott Card was not adding to the story or invention or conclusion of the movie in any way. 
No, no. And and he No. <laughs> they he also goes out of his way. I just Orson Scott Card. Uh let let me find the line. Why why paraphrase this? I can edit around <laughs> this later. Uh, Is it the part where he says like I reviewed the novelization of Willow? Yeah, the part where he's like you know what? Novelizations aren't very good, and you know how I know because I read Wayland Drew's Willow. I mean, I'm assuming Which is it's the pretty Drew. Good. I mean, it I'm assuming be. it's the Drew and not the Vinge. <laughs> yeah. If you read the Vinge Willow, it's like that's 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 like you know doing a boxing match match with a child. Like that book is not <laughs> meant for you. Yeah. I have um his paraphrase. Is that what you're thinking? Sure, the dilemma of the film novelist is that the story already exists. Someone else wrote it. The novelist is, therefore, merely a translator. Not a translator from one language to another, however, he is translating from one medium to another, and the sad truth is that it's damned hard to do it well. You know. And then he goes on to say, like, there's just not enough in a movie to really make a book, which is not true, obviously. I have terrible news for this guy about what films are because when he <laughs> when he hears that they themselves are based off of something else he's gonna lose his damn mind <laughs> yeah i had a really like i liked this novel very much we will talk about it i then was very intrigued to read um the afterwards and there's certainly like a lot of value and interest in the afterwards like the way he talks about how um he had a hard time understanding why brigman would ever love Lindsay. And then he's like, oh, Ed Harris made that totally clear to me in his performance. That's mm-hmm. great. I'm not totally sure that's reflected. He didn't go back and edit his book. But um, some of that stuff I found very interesting and nice. But on the whole, I was like, man, you are up your own butt about this in a way that like makes me like the book a little less. Definitely. Definitely. The, the, the afterwards are actively harmful to enjoyment of this. Not to mention that like, there's also just a dramatic deflation to mm-hmm. having a book that ends in a very interesting way. You know, it's good. It leaves me wanting more. What happened? And then there's a thing called afterward. And I'm kind <laughs> of thinking, is this some sort of epilogue or is this some sort of zoom out? And it's James mm-hmm. Cameron just being like, uh, novelizations are, are written by people who crave money. It's like, it's just... <laughs> like, I just read this whole thing. Come on. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. The last lines of, of Cameron's afterward are... Um, so he says something nice. He says, In these ways, the novel has fed into the film, just as the film has nourished the novel. Hey, that's good. I'm with you, buddy. The collaboration has been satisfying. Okay, maybe praise could have been a little more glowing. Uh, the resultant book is a damn good read and should be read as a book, not as a roadmap to a movie with you. It has its own life. Here we go, champ. But don't forget, you still have to see it to believe it. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Card also makes a point to be like, you should see the movie. Uh, it feels a little more begrudging from him. There is a part, I wish I could find it now. Go ahead. Place this in time for me. On Mm -hmm. two fronts. Okay. First off, uh, James Cameron disses novelizations of his own films. Yes. In the afterward. He's like, many novelizations have been done of my films, but I haven't found them satisfying or enlightening. I I think they're bad, essentially. Yeah. Is is he talking about Terminator 2, the one we read, or is that movie not out yet? That movie's not out yet. Okay. He's talking about two movies. This is like his third movie. 
of, sure. of like major Jim Cameron movie making. Is there is there a uh, novelization of his Piranha movie? Because we should do that. I have no idea. We should look into that. That'd be that'd fun. be that'd be amazing. But he's putting down the, the Frakes, the same guy who wrote two for writing one. <laughs> right, Terminator's I out. I guess, yeah. Terminator's yeah. out. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's a little rude. I did find it a little bit. He's like aliens, not good. And I was like, yeah, Alan Dean Foster did a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> That is nice. That is nice. <laughs> that is funny. It's nice for me, you know. There's the somewhere... other reason. Sorry, go. Nope, you go. No, no, no. I was just gonna say there's some point where Orson Scott Card, I think, says stuff like, "There isn't a moment in the book that isn't in the movie, and there isn't a moment in the movie that isn't reflected in the book." Fucking which liar. Is not true, and also really makes it sound like he's just translating, yeah. which he thinks is is no good. Uh, I wish I could find it because I was like, I think he's almost right about it. I think this book is like very like moment for moment mm-hmm. in some ways, um, but richer. <laughs> I don't know. I think he's basically quite... getting a little God complexy there, which is to say he <laughs> believes uh, that he was actively involved in the filmmaking. That's that's just what he believes. I, he never says it outright, but he thinks that he mm-hmm. essentially wrote the story in tandem with Cameron by plussing it up. <laughs> I think he thinks that because he had such a good read on the story mm-hmm. that all of the interiority he adds, which is terrific, lives through the performances of the actors, which is fun to think if you're the reader. Oh, I can kind mm-hmm. of see how Ed Harris is feeling this backstory that wasn't in the movie because I know about it. But for him yeah. to actually be like, that's it's all in there. You can't get that stuff from the movie. That's insane. And I think it's not. Like, we'll talk about it, certainly. But I think Coffee in particular feels like a different kind of guy in the book yeah. than in the movie. Um, even though the moments are the same. But before we jump in, just one more thing timeline-wise. Yes. I'm not a James Cameron guy mm-hmm. who... Did he divorce? Which wife? Oh, heavens. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't think it's Catherine Bigelow yet. Mm -hmm. Let me look it up. If this is a movie he made before divorcing anyone, that's why. It's a huge divorce movie. I mean, it must... It must be one of them. Let me see. Personal life. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gail Ann Hurd. That's what I thought. So he divorced Gail who is a, the producer on this film as well, in 1989. So they were like pre-production on this movie getting divorced. Wow. This movie comes out. He very quickly marries Catherine Bigelow, and then they also get divorced sort of shortly thereafter. Um, but it is it is Gail Ann Hurd is who... Well, they, they get divorced because of Terminator 2. Right. Right. Right, because he's like, I want to fuck Linda Hamilton. Well, I think Bigelow has her. I'll I'll cut this if I find it's wrong, but I'm pretty sure Bigelow at one point said um or maybe no, I take this back. Cameron at one point said the reason that his uh marriage to Linda Hamilton didn't work was because on the set of T2 he fell in love with Sarah Connor. <laughs> what a dork. What a doofus. What a dork. Yeah, that's ridiculous. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but it's really funny. He's such a doofus. I mean, I like Jim Cameron. I like his movies. I will see Avatar 2. 
I guess probably by the time this comes out, Avatar 2 will be out and we'll have seen it by many months. Anyway, I'm glad that he's like obsessed with water and wants to get deep under the ocean, which is reflected in the abyss. <laughs> Very much so. Movie one where he was like, what if I almost drowned people for cinema? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested to see what Avatar 3 is mm-hmm. because it feels like he's really blowing his wad on his thing <laughs> with Avatar 2. Yeah. I mean, does he have it in him to be like avatar 3 the smoothness of sky or whatever it's gonna be or is he gonna be like (laughs) the deeper waters i hope it's the deeper waters i hope they go deeper and deeper into the water (laughs) into the abyss he's like Um, there's actually like a way deeper abyss on this planet (laughs) and it's there's weirder aliens down there shared universe kapow I would be really proud of him if he tied the abyss into Avatar. Because I think most people don't love the abyss and most people haven't seen the abyss because it's like basically out of print Mm -hmm. and kind of hard to find because he refuses to commit energy to remastering it to release it on Blu-ray. I've almost never been so excited to watch a film as I was to watch this film after reading the novelization. Mm -hmm. Hannah was kind enough to lend me her... Uh, extended edition. Uh, I watched it with with frequent guest Max Fitzpatrick. Uh, we had a great time, but I will say this lived so vibrantly in my mind mm-hmm. that I did get a little bit of that syndrome where I was like, not only are things happening too fast at the beginning of this movie, but it all looks a little shittier than I thought. And then eventually, <laughs> once it was like mostly mm-hmm. underwater stuff, underwater action, whatever then it was awesome but those the opening submarine scene in the movie i was like this looks really bad i'm not into it (laughs) that's fascinating i am i mean i yes loaned you my dvd because i felt it was important that you watched the extended edition um because otherwise we wouldn't be having a fair conversation sure because the theater there's so much stuff in the book that is the extended the special edition as they say that is not in the theatrical cut. And if you just watch the theatrical cut, you'd be like, there's so much other stuff in this. And I'd be like, no, 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 it's in the special <laughs> edition. Um, so I was insistent that you take that DVD with you. I mean, a- as much as that's true, I've watched the extended mm-hmm. cut now and, and uh, plot wise, most of the stuff in the book is in the extended cut. This book, I mean, cards claim that he doesn't add or whatever, that it's all on screen. is just heinous because... He gives us two major things. First of all, he runs rampant with interiority. Some of the best passages in this book are people just being like, it is so damn hard to live this far underwater. Let me tell you how hard it is because I've been here a while. And it's Mm -hmm. like, that's not in the movie. And then the other thing, the thing that really makes this like a... Arthur C. Clarke, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm extrapolating that out from 2001 A Space Odyssey. This book in particular reminds me a lot of Childhood's End. Have you read that book? No. Just like the, it's, I don't even know if it's a recommend, but first off, this, <laughs> the edition, I think you have this edition of the book. It, yeah. it looks like a 90s Arthur C. Clarke paperback. It's, shiny but also almost completely absent of color which was like it's taking place at the bottom of the ocean baby that's the bottom of the abyss i understand (laughs) but it has the exact aesthetic of your like rendezvous (laughs) Mm -hmm. with rama type of novel where because because the sea looks like space 
I mean, they're really pivoting this book as like good science fiction, which it is. But the, the little sticker, you know, the now a major motion picture, implies that it was a book first. Like, they are doing everything they can to be like, book first, now a major motion picture, get hyped. Which is in alignment with what we already discussed. But also, I mean, I guess I, I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. It is styled to match that type of hard science fiction, which is very much Clark, so that any person in a bookstore would be like, oh, I like books that look like this. <laughs> Yeah, I should I should pick that up. The yeah. uh, not to mention it's it's written by a, a an author who's known for, if not the hardest science fiction, at least like uh, really detailed wor- world building. So you could be working yes. through Orson Scott Card's collection and be like, let me check this out, The Abyss, and then like it's like you know, it would fit in. Oh. It would fit in pretty well. Yeah, I want to take the the readers on the journey of just going from the cover of this book to like the first pages because the initial reaction on getting this hard copy is oh no no insert photos but a then shame. hannah what are we given within the first couple pages oh baby of this book? do we get a quote from friedrich nietzsche of when you look into the abyss the abyss looks into you which kada perfect wonderful we love it you turn <laughs> the page it. and there are schematics of the deep core there's diagrams there's level breakdowns it's like a good old like when you open a book and there's a map in the front that's what you're getting for like here's the location that you're gonna spend the whole book in it's the deep core two here i never referenced these while i was reading the book but it was cool that they were here it's it's four full pages of schematics i mean Mm -hmm. breaking down you know things that you would assume would be on here like living quarters and whatnot but then we have stuff like mud room uh what there's like sonar shack infirmary food pantry ladder well what do you do in the ladder well i don't know i don't know it's a ladder it goes up and down it must connect to a different ladder well i i didn't think about this like i was never (laughs) like where are we on the deep core right now you know like both the movie and the book are like here's the room in question and that's all you need to know. And it connects to a hallway. And then you end up in another room. And I was like, great, cool. But I love a little diagram. That's neat. I would be interested to hear from fans on this. I assume that when this comes out in like four months, we've become a huge hit podcast. <laughs> um, th- there's a thing. Uh, people on Twitter love to post like, uh, you ever notice this? This is such a, such a sidetrack. But you ever notice how someone posts like a funny tweet? And then someone else who, like, is a good comedian and I don't think is, like, a joke stealer just Mm. accidentally thinks they thought it. Sure. I mean, there's also, like, people come up with the same jokes. I guess. I guess. That also happens. Since since the first one often goes viral, I'm pretty convinced, much like I did with a certain, uh, you know, carburetor-type incident, I'm pretty convinced that people like see it but then forget that it wasn't like an organic thought because you're taking Mm -hmm. in 400 tweets a day right sure i mean yes i agree with you that happens there's also the version of i'm staying on twitter like the band on the titanic which i think is a joke that people organically came up with by themselves but literally everyone also came up with it that's just like a group mind we're all on the same page thing how do you feel how do you feel about this one there was like a Mm -hmm. viral tweet recently where someone was like the um 
the 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 toughest quality that you can have as a conservative is to be afraid of every major American city. And it it which is like a thing that is happening that people mm-hmm. who like identify with the right are like you live in they people say this to me all the time relatives they're like you live in Chicago is it safe there? And I'm like yes. Yeah. Yes. But that so like that I that went big and then like a week or two later a comedian I do respect, who I don't think is a joke stealer, she tweeted it out. And I was like, I think she just thinks she thought it. She may have thought it. I think that's also a group mind thing. Like, we're coming to the same conclusions, mm. and funny people are going to tweet it. This is why I don't I don't tweet that much. Yeah. And, you know, like, I my only interesting tweet, thoughts are stolen. I only tweet in character as the podcast. <laughs> that's not true. You tweet <laughs> as Andrew as the podcast a lot. <laughs> It makes sense that there's so many Better Call Saul tweets from our podcast handle. <laughs> I really like looking through my own feed and be like, why am I seeing this Better Call Saul tweet? And then it's like, authorized podcast liked. And I'm like, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So going back to the beginning of the book, the first yeah. three chapters we get, I mm. kind of thought some of this would be in the movie. Really? Yeah. The first three chapters we get are entitled Buddy, Lindsay, and Coffee. Or is it Who Hiram? has a first name, but Coffee. that's fine. Coffee. Hiram Coffee. Yeah, a, a name that you would give Michael Bean. I guess. I guess. <laughs> well, we talked in person that you, in reading the book, was like, certainly Hiram Coffee is black, uh, and he is Michael Bean. Yes. Yeah, I really thought... I wasn't going to bring that up. I really thought... Because... Oh, I'm sorry. We don't have to. We can go no, back. No, it's fine. Can... <laughs> it's fine. It. I can explain why I thought the character was black in the book. It was it, it, it was a, just a simple wires crossing thing of me mixing him up in my head with Coffee from the Green Mile, a character that I, I sure. enjoy. And there's so much in Coffee's like prologue section that is like he existed in like extreme poverty and he's getting like bullied by these these white teenagers, but like the white teenagers are doing a thing. And I did understand what was happening. This is what really snappy out of mm-hmm. it. The the white teenagers are doing a thing where they're like calling him the N-word and like other things because it's not true. As if because they're like, mm-hmm. we're so racist that if we were called the N-word, that would make us mad. So we're doing it to you. That was the moment where I was like, oh, like he he's a he's a white person. I don't know. It felt like the book to me was signaling that like this is like a person from from uh, some group we've identified as disenfranchised. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. I mean, I, I and then I said to you, there are characters that in reading the book, having not seen the movie in a couple years, I thought were black, and then I watched the movie, and everyone in the movie is white, and I was surprised. Well, it's not not everybody in the movie. Almost everybody. I mean, almost except for everybody. One night. Except for almost one everybody. Night. All of the Marines. Let's talk about the prologue sections, which I was surprised. By. Since yes. I already kind of jumped us in on coffee, let's talk about his prologue mm-hmm. first, even though I think we get it last. And we get it last we do. with the... I got to find the page. Hold on. As we should. He is the third lead of the story. Like, we no. get Bud first, the lead of the story. Then Lindsay, the second lead of the story. Then Coffee, the third lead of the story. I really like this uh, convention that authors will sometimes do, as long as they don't abuse it, which is... Just briefly addressing that they're writing a book and you're reading it. (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple points in this that like, until the book contextualizes that in the last two paragraphs. 
The funniest one I've ever read, just to continue to bring up Stephen King, which I just did <laughs> and we did on an episode we recorded yesterday. Um, <laughs> the, the funniest one is in Under the Dome when he's describing the dome going up like all over town and how it's causing all this different mayhem. And then like the seventh or eighth time he does, he's like, uh, okay, uh, one last thing that happened when the dome went up, like, like the, the writerly voice gets like a little too like stick with me, buddy. And then (laughs) after showing you like all eight of them, the narration goes, and now through the magic of narrative, we're back to the moment right before the dome came up. (laughs) (laughs) That is really funny. That's good. That's good, Steven. That's great, Steven. On page 26. I mean, 26. I really miss... No, um, go. Oh, no. I mean, there aren't as... I miss that convention. Like, it... There was a time... Like, you read Jane Eyre, and mostly uh-huh. it's, like, a normal first-person narration. And then, like, three times she's like, Reader, let me tell you something. And that shit rules. <laughs> and I, I miss it. It just doesn't pop up anymore. I text... Glad uh, Stevens carrying on the tradition. I've been texting frequent guest Leah uh, a good amount about uh, she does text back. It's not weird um, about how we wish they would explain uh, who's filming them in High School Musical, the musical, the series, <laughs> because mm-hmm. it, it not only does it bother me that we don't know, but it also seems like fertile ground for storytelling <laughs> that these helicopter parents would be like, what kind of agenda are you using my child for? I'm curious, too. So, at the beginning of the coffee uh, intro, Mm -hmm. we get the line, which is what made me think of this in the first place. One more person you've got to meet before we go on to Lieutenant Hiram Coffee, U.S. Navy SEALs. Uh, This chapter is crazy. It is never what I would have imagined for Hiram Coffee watching the movie. If you were like, just watching the movie, what do you think that guy's backstory is? I never would have come Well, what do you think this. it is, just from the movie? What's your, what's your I inclination? Think, I think I would have been like, he's just like kind of a jock kid who joined the military and thrived in it in a way that, you know, <laughs> not everyone does. But he's a guy, you know, I think par- part of it is work. I think I and Orson Scott Card probably have similar ideas that like people who join the military and thrive in it don't thrive in other places always and have a hard time are lacking like a sense of community or like home and so they join the military to find those things and when they do it's great for them it's good um but i don't think i would have been like and then he gave a boy terrible brain damage to defend his mother like i would never have been like he's a mama's boy not what i would have uh given him personally I went from very unimpressed with this specific backstory to extremely into it. And the switch was, so for the listener, uh, Hiram Coffey's backstory is that he grows up in extreme poverty. uh, He gets bullied a ton. He's just like a victim in many, many ways. Uh, He doesn't fight back because he doesn't really believe in vengeance Uh, He sort of only believes in practicality, and it leads to a situation where the bullying in some form or another causes it so that their local store uh, is, is, is inoperable. Like, the person running the store can't do it because the bully's either shoplifting or threatening him or or something. I don't quite remember. And it's sort of implied that they live in, like, a food desert and that this is, like, a very important shop for his mother to have. And so the moment his mother is like, oh, us not having that store is a huge problem. 
this guy Daryl, who's been bullying Coffee for, you know, 15 pages, goes from, like, a guy he never reacts to to a guy I need to eliminate. Yes. Coffee goes uh, and, like, hides near his home, and then as, as Daryl's coming up a staircase, hits him with a cinder block, basically, you know, in the head, basically makes him uh, permanently brain damaged. He becomes... Like, uh, you know, the type of person that everyone around town is just sort of, like, kind to and, like, helping throughout the day. And, and he's no longer a threat. At that point, I was like, oh, this is, I don't know this character because I've never seen the movie. But, like, this is stupid. Like, this is, it's like... It's, like, verging on, like, psychopath shit, which is not what you want. Like, no, not interesting. Well, I wasn't, I, I didn't know the shape of the story. And so what I thought is that it was showing, it was doing that type of storytelling where they introduce a character with one trait and they're like good storytelling is when they keep the trait the whole time and you can look back at the beginning and be like wow that was a microcosm for what happened in the abyss i really thought he might be like one of the protagonists and that it was a story of like how he's like a gentle fawn until it's necessary to fight and then he's like a killer and I was like, that is, if that's the direction this goes, this book thinks I'm dumb. The idea <laughs> that it has to add all this. The, the amazing turn f- that this prologue takes is that Coffee, who is devoted to his mother, loses her love. Yeah. Or feels he does. Like, feels he loses she her love. She gets remarried. And that's enough for him to be like, mommy doesn't love me anymore. So I have nothing. <laughs> I have to find that line. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> oh yeah here we go okay uh so his mother uh, remarries as hannah says coffee goes off and joins the military he becomes a navy seal and we get this passage seals never got public credit for their success never got public funerals when they died in the line of duty their work was always done by invisible hands that got to some of them they got hungry for recognition but not coffee's team if they had his approval that was, mu- that was worth more than medals. And as for coffee, he'd settled that question long ago. He didn't work for glory. He worked for America. The Navy told him what America needed, and he and his team did it. That's what he lived for. He never wrote to his mom until an officer told him to, and then he never missed a week. He always had a supply of about 30 letters to her, pre-written and sealed in envelopes, so that when he was on assignment... A seal from another team could mail them for him every Friday, just like clockwork. She never realized that he didn't love her anymore. Yeah, that's something, huh? That's really good. And it's like, Coffee is introduced essentially as this robot, this reprogrammable robot. And part of me wondered, because he goes from my mother is everything to my country is everything... I wondered whether actually he was going to come out smelling okay at the end of this story, because it seems possible to me that someone, I, I probably a woman, I, I don't know, I feel like, I wonder how you would get past his defenses. Like, it feels possible to me that someone could reach into his mind and reprogram him, like an Imperial droid, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the the really wonderful thing about Coffee is that when he sort of takes his heel turn. It's based in practicality. Like, his thought process, and we have this information from this little prologue chapter, which is almost heavy-handed in hindsight, to be like, this is his whole deal. That he's like, 
my first responsibility is to America. And therefore, I cannot allow nuclear weapons to fall into Russian hands. And therefore, I have to do what amounts to an intergalactic genocide. Like, it's too far. It's obviously wrong. But you can see how he gets there. And like, he's a sick puppy by the time he decides to bomb an alien civilization. But like, you can kind of be like, well, I, I get it. <laughs> I get why somebody like him would reach these conclusions. And I like that element of his character a lot. That like, he goes underwater crazy, but never totally loses like his base core of who he is, which is this like, practicality, devotion to like one thing at a time. Um, and his team. I really like that he, That anytime the author's voice is not the voice of God. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is like authors or screenwriters often speak through their characters, like through their dialogue. And you'll be reading a book and you'll be like, the character will say, I knew, you know, that he wouldn't go home before, you know, seeing his sister. And it's very frustrating to me when... I can tell that is ironclad law. That when a character, mm-hmm. quote unquote, knows something, that is actually infallible intuition. Uh, I it, It's amazing to me in a, I wish I could think of an example, but when a character does that and they're like, I know we wouldn't do that. And then they're just fucking wrong. I love that mm-hmm. because it's like, you know, human emotions are so hard to read and, and whatnot. A huge part of the abyss is how, how we we don't communicate in a way that is clear you know you know what's the ultimate example of this you're you're totally right but you you've seen bound the wachowski's movie i haven't actually okay like mid movie spoilers for bound not the end but the whole movie hinges on them being like okay we're gonna rip off our husbands and when we do xyz they'll act you know abc and the second the plan starts they're like he's doing very different things (laughs) i love that i love that oh those wachowski's are so good the the reason I, I, I bring up that trope is because <laughs> mm-hmm. this passage suggests that he that Coffee is this unflinching robot, that he's able to fight for country or for mother or for whatever, and he's bulletproof. And then we see, of course, as he gets more and more pressure sick as the book goes on, that he has intrusive thoughts, like, why did that bitch stop loving me? And <laughs> yeah. things like that. Like, the book sets us up to be like, oh, he's this, he's this, uh, you know, slab of stone. And then we see the little worm boy, like, squiggling later on. He's a human being. He really, really is under all of it. And, like, he really cares about his team. Like, this, this intro gives us examples where he's like, He's never lost a man. Like, he's really good at keeping his guys safe and keeping them happy and making them all feel like valued members of the team. You know, he's a good manager. And they all like and respect him. And then it ends with this thing that's like... um, Like, the very last, like, four sentences of this coffee chapter. It was the work Coffee was born for. He made his whole team feel like they were born for it, too. They were absolutely loyal to each other, absolutely obedient to their orders, the absolutely perfect team. Except one. Funny thing is, he didn't even know it. The one who loved Coffee best, he wasn't really one of them, not deep down, and he never guessed. Which is like a funny little hint that I don't totally understand. Well, because it's Monk. I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Right. 
Okay. It's just like, it feels like, um, certainly Monk is a different type of guy than Coffee is, and that's enough for him to choose to do the right thing instead of the obedient wrong thing. This is just like a weird little hint that I don't think really pays off in the way that maybe Orson Scott Card thought it would. Yeah, I, I, I guess if I'm being generous, the idea is that his concept of a perfect team is one that's like very unquestioning and has sort of abandoned the idea of universal morality for like the team you know for nation Mm -hmm. you know whatever and i guess he's just going like coffee didn't realize one of his guys actually still had a heart (laughs) Uh, oh coffee Coffee's my favorite character in the Abyss. I love Lieutenant Coffee. I mean, is is there a movie with Michael Bean in it where he's not your favorite character? Yeah, totally. Name I mean, he one. is my favorite character in Terminator. I love his squirrely little sicko in Terminator. <laughs> um, my favorite character in Aliens is Hudson. It's not Hicks. Wow. I wow. like Hicks, but he's not my favorite character. Wow. Uh, Tombstone, he's not my favorite character, though I do love him. Like, sure. he's always good, but you know. There's some movies where he... I love Michael Bean, and I think what Michael Bean is bringing to it is really, like, top-notch good. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll circle back to what's so good about Michael Bean as Lieutenant Coffee. Let's talk about these other intro chapters. What do you think of the, the Bud stuff? Uh, I think the Bud stuff is good for the listener. The Bud stuff is that Bud, as a child, had an older brother and a kind of, who had a difficult relationship with their dad. And one night... His brother wants to go hang out with his friends and Bud like makes it happen for him, kind of. So his brother takes him along. Then Bud sort of gets caught in a riptide at the beach and gets pulled out into the sea. And his brother goes to save him and himself drowns. And his body is never recovered. And Bud feels like a lot of guilt about that. And also has like a a full knowledge of what it feels like to drown, (laughs) which sticks with him forever. Am I missing anything important in there? What if this was a little on the nose? Yeah, sure it is. Everyone else gets... The other two chapters, the Coffee and Lindsay chapters, are like, what a crazy origin story for this person, but it makes sense. And then the Bud chapters just, yeah, this makes sense. Yep, it does make sense. Uh, It does make sense. It's It's a nice intro into the story, though. It gives you, like, here's our main character... Don't forget that water is very important to where we're going. Water, keep it in the back of your mind. The only thing I knew about the abyss before reading this book was that there was a science fiction element involving breathing liquid. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought at the end of this chapter, I, I thought, okay, this is definitely in the movie, this thing about his brother dying. And it's a movie about how everyone who's ever drowned is at the bottom of the Marianas Trench? Holy moly, that Living? would be quite a movie. Would Living it? down there. I don't, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it would be a twist. <laughs> it, it would be, be a quite twist. a reveal to be like, it's me, your brother. I've been living under the ocean the whole time. Whew, that's not what happens. <laughs> I hope more charismatic people will drown. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Then there's the Lindsay chapter. I think this is great. I love the Lindsay yeah, chapter. Yeah, I'm a fan of the Lindsay chapter as well. I think it all makes perfect sense. So give us the rundown. Like, she is her father's daughter is the thing. That her mother is like a girly girl 
who wanted the perfect little housewife life and made it happen for herself by marrying a guy and having like five daughters and raising all of them to be perfect little women. Except for Lindsay, who just like isn't into it. And one day she like actually engages with her father and is like, what do you do all day? And he's like, oh, you care? (laughs) How interesting. And they form a relationship where he like teaches her about building and engineering. And she like makes that her whole thing Uh, is like independent creation. She doesn't need anybody. She loves her dad. She's not part of the family unit. She can do things for herself. You're you're only forgetting that the Mm -hmm. Lindsay chapter begins with, if you're going to understand anything about Lindsay Brigman, first, you've got to know some things about her mother, Kathy Thomas. Remember that? (laughs) I guess that's true about practically everybody. There's like three pages about her mom. (laughs) Her mother's backstory, essentially, is I think that she has a friend who's cool and seems like hot and charismatic and is a lady. And rich. And rich. And she like brings her over one time to see her family. And the rich girl is scared of poverty. And uh, (laughs) then basically Kathy raises Lindsay to what? Be, I don't know. To, tries to raise her to be well, like, holier than thou, right? Her mother is like an Italian lower class from an Italian lower class family. And she mm-hmm. brings over a upper class wasp and watches that girl be like, you live like this? Not even yeah. in like a rude way. Not in like, a t- just like to be like, oh. And little like Italian Catholic Catherine Mary says like, no, I'm going to be the upper class wasp. I'm going to change and destroy my culture. Because I want to have the American dream, basically, of, like, the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids and the husband who works all day and comes home and you don't have a relationship with him. Like, she picked a guy who, like, looked right and made him marry her. I'm going to read this because I assume it's a good passage. Mm -hmm. This is Kathy's uh, thinking about her husband. To Kathy, he wasn't a Protestant. Frank Thomas was an American with a brand new engineering degree, a job offer from Kodak with a five-figure salary, and a last name that didn't end with a vowel. He was also blonde and bright-faced, without the heavy, brooding eyebrows and dark, shadowed whiskers that Kathy's brothers and cousins had. In short, he was exactly the sort of husband that Debbie Benchley would have married if she hadn't died of polio in sixth grade. Oh yeah, Debbie died of polio. Yeah, dropping that in as like, hey, you've created this thing that like, doesn't even fucking matter. That girl died. (laughs) She can't judge you anymore. No, it's like the moment in 47 Ronin where he's like, what's this demon knight gonna do if it's if it's wizardess master dies? It's just gonna go around being terrible. And so Deb radicalizes Kathy into being a jerk. And then Deb dies Mm -hmm. and the jerk reigns. Yes. Uh, yeah, and they have all these daughters that have, like, solid American names, and she raises them to be solid, successful American girls. And then Lindsay's, like, a tomboy, essentially, and that's unacceptable to her <laughs> The The scene where they, where Lindsay and her father connect, which, first off, it's very funny to double negative a backstory, that... Lindsay's backstory, as opposed to Bud's, which is like, you know, what you thought happened, happened, or what you could imagine happened, happened. Lindsay's is like, Lindsay is a reaction to her mother, who is a reaction to something not unlike Lindsay. (laughs) 
Anyway, yeah. uh, her dad is working on uh, something, right? Mechanical. And Lindsay comes in. Uh, it says, she climbed the stairs into the attic. He must have heard her footsteps. The singing stopped. But when she got to the top, he didn't look at her. He had his back to her. He was gazing at something made of small pieces of wood, interlaced in a latticework so it seemed light and airy, even though it was about five feet long and a couple of feet high. It wasn't furniture, and it wasn't art. Lindsay had already been to enough homes and enough museums to know furniture and art when she saw them. It was a bridge, a model of a bridge. My senior project, father said, in civil engineering. Do you build real bridges? I build optical assemblies and the structures that support them, and the, and the precision machines that move them. Lindsay didn't know what any of that meant. Oh, she said. Thanks for asking, that's the dad. If she had been older, she might have heard the pain in his voice, the loneliness, for he had long since realized that he was merely an unavoidable accessory in Kathy's home. There had to be a father, but no one knew what he was actually for once the money was in the bank and the children were conceived. Lindsay could not know that he was in the attic this particular day, brooding about his first infidelity the afternoon before. She could not know how emotionally raw he was from guilt, from anger, from relief, from fear that it would happen again, from fear that it would not. Okay. Yeah, a very unhappy man. There's something to be said about showing that that tension of you've cheated on your wife, it's a bad marriage, and, and the tension of I'm terrified that I'll do it again. I'm also terrified I won't do it again because I mm -hmm. I exist in a place where no true happiness is possible. I'm either unhappy in one way or I'm I'm a betrayer in another. It's an interesting thought. This book taken as a whole has a bit of a problem with women. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's an attitude, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll hit some passages later, but there's an attitude about Lindsay herself who the book seems to early on have empathy for when she's a child, very important. When Lindsay is an adult, the book is like, uh, everyone thought of her as a huge bitch, and her inner monologue is, I wish I could stop being a huge bitch. Yeah, I do have kind of a problem with a lot of the casual misogyny <laughs> from almost every single character in the book. I think misogyny is great. Soundbite. I think <laughs> I think it's I think it's great if it's serving something. And yeah, it pops up in a couple of places that like jarred me because I was like, this character doesn't feel like someone who would be this casually misogynistic. A hundred percent. And to show that men treat her poorly in the field she has elected for is like great. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. But for her interior thoughts to be. I'm being too cold. I'm being too closed off. Essentially, I mean, this book is almost like, damn, she's being such a woman right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's it's a little upsetting. You want to see that her internal world is much more different from the external opinions of her. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's... In the movie, I think you get the sense that Lindsay is proud of how she is and comfortable with how she is. That she's sure. like, you know, like a girl boss, essentially. She's like a badass bitch and she's not taking any scuff from anybody. And she's fine with that. And if it mm -hmm. ruins some relationships, then that's really on them that they can't handle her as she right. is. Right. Um, and yeah, to have her internal monologue stuff be like, oh, man, I'm really a bitch and people don't like me, huh? That's too bad. <laughs> like, and there's a level of like women be like this, huh? That the book's attitude sort of has that I don't really like. 
Not so good. Not so good. (laughs) I mean, even in her little backstory here, the fact that like her family is like, ugh, Lindsay, we hate Lindsay. She's so crummy. Like, she's (laughs) just a different type of, like, I get the, the time in which she's being raised, like, sure. But like, I don't know. It's just like so, I don't know. Maybe this is like a very 21st century concept, but like, I don't think you have to have a bad relationship with your mother to like become a cold hard bitch, you know? Definitely not. And also, and also I don't think that necessarily being a cold hard bitch is bad (laughs) either. Like one night when we meet her is also kind of a cold hard bitch, but like she's gets props for it. We all like her for that. I spent many years bemoaning that we didn't have a movie about shitty friendships that seem to go wrong for no reason. We got it. <laughs> the Banshees of Inna Sharon is out. I've got a new complaint. Yeah. We need cinema about the relationship between parents that are so obviously super nice and their children who are assholes, but obviously the parents can't see it. Mm, Something I see okay. all the time in life where I'm like, I'm like, oh, this parent and child love each other. I can't stand the child. I love their parents. That is interesting. That's not where I thought you were going. I thought you were going to say, and this is something I would like to see, is movies with like perfectly nice adults and perfectly nice children, and they just don't get along. Mm. Like there's like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a bad mother, but like we have like a core problem. Um, sure. That isn't based in like you're abusive or you're cruel or I'm a bad kid or whatever. No, I want to be clear. Like, I don't well... have any children and I don't have as much empathy as you're suggesting. I want <laughs> to investigate. <laughs> These are just different concepts. I want to investigate why some people are really nice to me, but their kids aren't. Mm, like, what did you do to raise your kid that way? Yes. How did your kid turn into such a shitty kid? Why am I dealing the with this? The kid from Halloween Ends, that little Jeremy. How did he turn out so fucking shitty? Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's probably why I thought of this. That's the prime example, mm-hmm. fictional wise. The parents are awesome. The kids recently. Sucks. Kid sucks. Kid sucks. Yeah, like Lindsay's backstory is very much that she felt like she had to put up a bunch of walls in order to be who she was, right? And like live the life she wanted to lead. And so she has like a hard time connecting with people because she's like that, and she's very protective of herself. She didn't have a lot of support. And then she meets Bud, and they get along. And she, there's a, there's a part where she says, um, he was the first person since her father that she actually needed. Lacking any other definition of the word, she thought that this was love. So she married him. Which is crazy. That's a really, like, sinister concept of Lindsay. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. That, it's, that she has it's, like no concept of emotions. The 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 book is almost like masquerading as if it has love and empathy for Lindsay, but it's really just putting her up as another obstacle to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. I wish this was a little kinder to Lindsay. I'm being so militant about like passages today because there's so many good ones. Do you have yeah. any do you, do you have any idea where the one is where they talk about why they divorced? I think I do. I think maybe I do on page 23, I think. Sure. Where basically like they she pushes his buttons and she fights with him because she's a person who pushes people away, right? Mm-hmm. And he is a person who won't allow himself to be pushed away, right? Won't fight with her 
knows how to handle her, just kind of like rolls with those punches and is like, okay, Lindsay. Um, and then there's a part where it says, but if she did anything to hurt morale in the crew, accusing somebody of doing a bad job, criticizing anything they did, Bud would shut her down so fast that sometimes that it sometimes even left, ugh, that sometimes even Lindsay was left speechless. She didn't understand it. He wouldn't fight to stand up for himself, but he'd fight to protect his people. She convinced herself that this meant he didn't really love her. She didn't realize that Bud's crew was as important to him as Deep Core was to Lindsay. His crew was the one thing he had created in his life, so on and so forth. But, like, her concept of, like, what love means, which to her means that he's gonna stand up to her, that instead of, in the way that, like, her father got pushed over by her mom, when Bud allows himself to be pushed over by her, he's like, well, I guess you don't, she's like, you don't love me. And therefore, this is breaking. Um, mm-hmm. Even though she's really personally like snapping twigs all over their relationship on purpose. That doesn't feel internally consistent to me now that I'm hearing it again. She she wants him to stand up for her, right? Because she gets mad when he snaps at her about the crew. Yeah, he wants it to... I think she wants him to make it about them. And he won't make it about them. He'll mm. make it about... Well, this is like... You can be mean to me, but you can't be mean to my crew. And she's like, I don't want to have, I don't want to be, you shouldn't be okay with me being mean to you, I think is actually what's happening. I, I'm just She like chafing. wants him to come back at her. Well, that's, that's what I'm chafing against. I'm chafing against the idea that she enjoys him pushing back against her because every time it happens in the movie, it only leads to like further issue. I don't, I mean, she's not right. That's not yeah. how their relationship would succeed. I think she's just a person who, like, needs... The way she is presented in this opening chapter, anyway. I think she is a person who, like, doesn't understand what a healthy relationship looks like and thinks that it involves some level of conflict because that's, like, what her parents had. And even though she knows, like, what her parents had wasn't good, she's like, that's what a marriage is. Like, we're pushing against each other, we challenge each other, we're, like, having fights, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Bud's like, I'm not gonna bother fighting with you... I think she sees that in the way, like, when her father checked out of the marriage and gave up. I see. That's when it's over, Would I think. Okay. No, I, I like this that. this is all not at the top of her brain. Right? I did, I, I, I'm more or less going through this book uh, <laughs> from front to back, but we go from those first three chapters of prologue to contact. Yeah. I was astonished. When I put this movie on. This movie, which is two hours and 51 minutes as the extended cut. Moves at a good clip, I must say. I think it's a... It moves nicely. I would almost say it moves at too good a clip. And I'll I'll get into that. (laughs) But I could not believe that Card had whole cloth invented this perspective of the aliens thing. And Oh, yeah. The reason I couldn't believe it, I think, is because when you watch the movie... If you don't have the perspective of the aliens, it seems very nonsensical what is happening. It's a mystery. Like, it's a slow reveal of what's happening. And you, like everybody else, is like, what's going on down there? Something's going on. Um, It's just a totally different perspective. I cannot uh, fathom (laughs) uh, being able to understand what happens to the submarine that kicks off the plot if I only watched the movie it's not even Mm -hmm. apparent to me from 
you know, the visuals, that the, the, the fast object that went by the submarine actually ended up passing them. They keep talking about it. Oh, there's something mm-hmm. really fast coming. Nothing moves that fast. Okay, that's interesting. Well, they then, get jostled by the slipstream. I guess. That's what knocks them into the wall and fucks them up. Look, maybe I'm just a bad viewer of film, but <laughs> the the book goes to the lengths of being like, though the thing like didn't touch them and they couldn't see it and, and whatnot, like suddenly the water came to fill the space that the ship, the invisible ship was yeah. occupying. It does move at an unbelievably fast pace in the movie. Like, the chapter where the submarine sinks is probably, I don't know, 20, 30 pages. It starts right? on page 39. Yeah, so it's like it's like 20 solid pages. Um, and in the movie, it's like four minutes. Like, it's really fast. Yeah. And it would help to have, like, maybe a little bit more breathing room there. <laughs> Just to be like, what's going on? This is incredible like backstory about the aliens from card because what Mm -hmm. we're given i mean a lot of this episode is going to be plot summation but so much of it is invented for the book uh what we're given is that these aliens which refer to themselves as builders uh mostly travel underwater that's that's where they're comfortable they are not from earth uh but they came to earth they live at like the depths of the ocean or whatever they need a lot of pressure here's here's a good before i before i finish this thought here's here's the passage that opens chapter 4 contact mm-hmm. the earth isn't as much as planets go but small as it is most of human history has taken place in a space that's smaller yet a thin layer starting in the dirt and sticking up maybe 12 feet into the air about as high as a man on horseback can wave a sword Now and then, a building would punch a hole in that 12-foot ceiling. Now and then, a miner's tunnel would drop down a little. But after a few years or decades or centuries, the people would abandon their works. Then the wind and rain would tear down whatever stuck up and fill in whatever went deep until the earth was healed again. We could always see a little outside that layer. Clouds rolling in, sunshine in the sky, stars at night. We could guess at what was going on under us when the earth shook or when big old fish swam up and beached themselves to die. But the height of the heavens and the depths of the sea, they were so far away that whole civilizations could have been going on, and we'd never have even known it. This... This they the, were, and we didn't. This is the pitch. Which I mean, is good. This is just a... Just a, It's obviously the idea for the movie, but it's like, it's an A-plus, you know, uh, crawl at the beginning of your movie if i see this come up in text i'm like there are aliens under the sea i really can't believe you stopped before they were and we didn't like oh, that's didn't the it. end of your crawl and it rocks yeah this they like were and we the didn't. earth is small but they're here like it's punchy it's really punchy the, the what the chapter goes on to give us is that the builders are capable of going outside of the sea using like their version of like planes or spaceships or whatever Mm -hmm. and one of them while i think essentially on patrol like runs across a satellite that has nuclear capabilities and they're like oh no like yeah they basically thought that we were dumb little bugs and then realized we had developed nuclear capabilities right and and their concern as they say many times is not for the safety of humanity and not for the safety of themselves because they can survive nuclear attacks. They're they're basically thinking, we came here. The whole reason we're here is because underwater we're able to just build a bunch of spaceships and we're going to use them elsewhere. This is like a factory for us. 
and you just can't don't nuke the planet that'd be really bad we need the resources you guys yeah and so hard. the the builder like tries to fuck with the satellite and gets uh nuked or something it it, it stops the successfully the fucks with the satellite yeah. but it gets pretty hurt. gets fried mm-hmm. goes home on the way home is like careening super fast through the ocean because it's fucked up uh, yeah, and it's so fucked up that it, like, can't put on its shielding mechanisms properly, essentially. And so, like, it becomes visible on our sonar. Right. And this submarine is like, this thing is coming at us so fast, it's impossible. It must be the Russians. Right. Because it's 1989, baby. Hannah, who wins uh, fighting on the back of a satellite? Uh, the Builder or Soundwave? Oh, Soundwave. Soundwave would fuck Soundwave the Transformer wins? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I okay. kind of do, yeah. I think that those are two aliens who would look at each other and be like, we are not friends. Right. And then Soundwave would be like, zurp, zurp, and fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Soundwave <laughs> does have the cool noises. Kind of gives it an edge. <laughs> it's astounding to go from this novel, which is like, of course, the damaged builder is like trying to get home and it's all met, to like the movie, which is just like, something fast is coming and we're shaken. We don't know what it is. I really enjoy the part where the captain is like, that's impossible. It must be wrong. Like he, in the way that everyone at Chernobyl was like, that's physically impossible. What you're saying is happening, right? And that's why it got so bad. Um, That this captain is like, no, no, nothing could be moving at 160 knots. So I'm going to behave as if that's not true. And then they get super fucked up because he doesn't take the threat seriously. Hannah, I said this exact thing with in a nautical setting on speed two cruise control. Remember, I was like, (laughs) there's nothing more satisfying than when you tell your boss that something's going wrong with like the cash register. And they go, if I come out there and it's an issue that's easily solved, I'm going to kill you. And then they come out and they're like, I've never seen this problem before. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, this captain of the USS Montana makes that same mistake. People on boats be doing this a lot. (laughs) They sure do. Um, And he allows the submarine to get too close to the wall of the trench. And everyone's like, we should be further away from the wall of the trench. And he's like, no, no, we're fine. They're not fine. The the little alien comes past and its slipstream is so powerful. It pushes them into the wall. And then everybody dies. And they here's everyone dying. So oh, it's so upsetting. Good. And they all Every drown. time someone dies in this book, it's like the most upsetting thing I've ever read. I'm going to skip the, the actual action of them dying. Everyone's like drowned in the ship. Yeah. And it says, only they didn't die completely dead. Not at first, anyway. The human body doesn't switch it off, itself off that fast, especially at deep ocean temperatures. Everything just slows down in the cold. You're dying, sure. But the breakdown of cells in your brain gets slowed down enough that for a while, an hour maybe, or 10 minutes, or two hours, or 30 seconds, you're hanging there in the water, unconscious, your heart stopped, your lungs not doing any more of the old in and out, but your brain's still alive, your thoughts are still hanging there, your memories are still locked away in a time-release safe, waiting for death to lock them up for good. That was how the crew was, some of them anyway, when the builders came to look at the sub. The builders go on to reach into the minds of some of these people, and they're very informed by one guy who's thinking about being with his wife and how much that rules. And <laughs> yeah, and they're like, oh, these humans have a capacity for 
love. Yeah, and imagination that they thought we didn't have. Another thing about this book that felt essential, that was then missing in the movie, is Mm -hmm. the active manipulation of thought by these aliens. Sure. Which I think is hinted at in the film, right? Like, at, at one point, Lindsay does go... They don't mean us any harm. I don't know how I know that. And Bud's like, what What do you want me to do with that? What do you want me to do with that crazy thing you just said? Yeah. But in this book, they're very explicit about we can place thoughts in people's heads. Yes. I have a problem with that, and I don't like it in the book. Well, talk to me about it. Well, I much prefer what I read in the movie is that they, they do have some sort of, they're trying to communicate with us, right? And some of that is like in the brain, right? But I really like the feeling I get in the movie is that like the builders, when they get to Lindsay, right, and and they just feel like she's a kindred spirit, essentially. She is also a builder and she has imagination and love in her. And they don't have to manipulate that out of her. But like she is open minded, trusting, curious in ways that they like. And they don't have to like chemically make her open minded, curious and kind like that's who she is and that's what they respond to and i think sometimes in the book you get the sense that they're like tweaking a little too much that by the end when they're like bud we love that you love your wife i'm like you could have just told him he loved his wife you could do this to all of us what are you doing like it doesn't have the same power to me when they're manipulating so much it's much more powerful to me that like we as human beings are inherently um you know worth being not washed away Mm -hmm. and that they are able to finally see us as things that like have deeper like when they look like there's a part pretty i guess in this chapter where they're talking about how like they looked at our structures and what they saw of our societies and how we interacted with each other and we're like they're ants right they have no souls they have no anything um and that they are able to come to the realization that like we do have that stuff we are capable of kindness and sacrifice and individuality in a way that they thought we weren't Mm -hmm. that like for that to come organically out of a human being is much more powerful to me than them doing all this like tweaky tweaky thought manipulation the reason i like that fair i mean it's fair the reason (laughs) i like the thought manipulation and 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 the it goes beyond thought manipulation they're like manipulating our body chemistry which usually still has the same goal you know to make him feel Mm -hmm. better to make him feel more at ease whatever I just like it because it itself is messy and causes problems. Oh, yeah. In the film, uh, one of my things that I wrote down that just this is nonsensical is when they are in the room with the nukes on the sub and Jammer has his freak out moment and like goes catatonic, they leave the thing in where they're like his oxygen level is all fucked up, Mm -hmm. but they they don't as the as the book explains cuz they can't they don't explain that like it was because of this this totally you know botched attempt by a builder to be like oh this jammer guy's freaking out let me let me help him out i he loves oxygen human loves humans love oxygen and then he's just like essentially like coding um and the <laughs> the the thing i found weird about that in the in the movie is that like just don't say the thing about his oxygen level. I'll believe well, that someone had a panic his attack. Thing. Oh. That's the whole thing. Is like he's so scared that he retreats and bonks his air tank 
and that fu- that's what fucks up his oxygen levels and that's why they're like they try to fix the knobs and they can't and they have to get him out of there what what's not in that sequence is that yes the the builder is like let me get in and see if i can calm him down which does not help him because he's so freaked out mm-hmm. and then that the builder is like okay i'm just gonna put him in a coma so that he doesn't get worse. <laughs> I'm just going to put a stop on this. And like the movie presents it as like, and they were able to get him home in a way that is, they saved him. And later when he wakes up organically, it's like, okay, well, I guess he was fine. He came out of that. And that's good. Like the, the elements when the builders save people's lives are mm-hmm. not in the movie. And I like some of them. I like when they save Catfish and like push him a little further to get him back in. Right. Because they see heroism in him. I like that one. I like, you know, but like, but it, there's, the, there's a couple points that I'm like, this is a little too hands-on. The movie me. has it all there, though, because when when Jammer does get back up at the end of the movie, he does reference, like, seeing what he calls the angel. Well, that's when it came at him in the submarine. Oh. That's because oh. that's in the book. That he's like, oh, God, the angel of death is here for me. Interesting. Okay, well... Fuck me. I mean, it's it's interesting to have it both ways. And I'm co- cool. I'm glad to have read the book and have it both ways. I do prefer the personally, and this is because of who I am as a person <laughs> and what I like to get out of my alien fiction, mm-hmm. um, that the aliens are not quite as hands-on in our brains and that we're really just having like a communication. Like this is first contact. This is how do we talk to each other? How do right. we see each other as alive? There's no. a there's a great explanation at the end of the book as to why they're using TV to communicate with uh, Bud and and you know first of all I think another deliberate 2001 thing because there's that hmm. scene in 2001 at the end where he ends up in the room the book is a lot more explicit about the fact that the reason there's a TV in the room is that this room has been constructed from like aliens understanding of humans through television which is cool, mm-hmm. in 2001. Yeah. I think in The Abyss, especially if you are familiar with 2001, which, when you're making a thing where you're really trying to be like, huh? We're like those guys. We're not in deep space. We're in deep ocean. Right. But... When, <laughs> when you're doing a thing like that, I think you're you're inviting comparisons. And one thing I don't like about the ending to the film mm-hmm. is you see the TV stuff come up and it's very confusing for a bit. It really feels like, oh, same thing as 2001. You're saying mm-hmm. this is your understanding of the human race, whereas in the book, they're very explicit about, like, uh, you know, we, we keep trying to communicate with you by planning thoughts in your head, but you, as humans, are not used to having plans put into your head or, like, thoughts just, like, projected in. It's sort of a, a you reverse... You think they're yours. It's a reverse inception a thing where they're yeah. like, you're getting inceptioned... We wish you knew that you were. <laughs> yeah, we need you to understand that you're being inceptioned. <laughs> and so they, they settle on, okay, if we show them TV images, they're so used to watching television and having that be something that like gives them information that that will be a way they know we are communicating with them, which is, yeah. is crackerjack. Really good idea. And that they don't, they just can't figure out how to speak English either. That, like, they, they can't make the sounds to actually right, speak English right, with right, us. So right, they're like, right, well, right. TV speaks English. Like, both of those <laughs> things in tandem is really, really good. And I like it. 
continuing to move through the the beginning of the book. Yeah, uh, we've been talking for like an hour and a half or maybe a fifth of the way into the I'm book. on page 67, but I, I got a couple things I'm okay. just going to blow through. So this is a passage I have I have bookmarked as Dieter and Card and Cameron hate Lindsay. Yeah, I have this too. On 67? Mm-hmm. Where, uh, yeah, 67 into 68. Why don't you read it? Um, basically, Dieter is like a, a company man, right? Sure. That I Lindsay mean, is dealing with. He disappears with or so He's much because he stays yeah. on the Explorer, right? I don't even know. I don't even know. There's a bunch of these guys. But he's he's a guy she's dealing with, and she's like, I'm going. When do I go? And he's like, you're going now. You're already gone, said Dieter. Then, because he couldn't resist cutting her down to size just a little, he added, if you're on your period, you better borrow tampons from the secretaries because the helicopter's on the roof, and they've already waited longer than they said they would. It wasn't until she was sitting inside the Navy chopper, chopper that she realized how Dieter had insulted her. Pretty little head, my ass, she thought. And he no doubt meant the sexual innuendo as well. Not to mention the insulting remark about tampons. She assumed that Dieter must talk this way to all women. It never occurred to her that he never did. That her arrogant attitude had goaded him beyond endurance. That she is such a bitch. Mm -hmm. She turns people into misogynists. Is heinous. Is that what you were thinking of? Yeah, I use this excuse in real life all the time. (laughs) So, you know, I'll go out and be horrible to a woman in public. And then I go around to every table at the Arby's and I go, you know, I'm actually a really nice guy. That was just such a bad person. She made me do it. She made me a misogynist. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, really crummy. Um, I mean, that's a good way to make a type of friend. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I know. I mean, that's, I don't think it's fair to say that James Cameron hates Lindsay in that moment because that moment's not in the movie. Sure. No, I agree. But like, he is. Look, this is the this is he the blade, it. this is the blade cutting both ways. If you're going to put an afterword <laughs> at the end that is like the thing that makes my book a superior to the novelization is that it was it was so collaborative and this was really a part of the vision. It's like you better read this thing, dude. Yeah, it is. Pr- that's a pretty hateful moment towards her that I was taken aback by. I agree. But she makes it down to the deep core. And am I correct that in the movie she doesn't bullshit her way on in any capacity she just is it, it just is condoned whereas in the book she yeah like i think so essentially stows away to get onto her own rig uh yes i mean i think in the movie like they just maybe she, she moves very fast in dropping the cab in but there's no so there's no protest could, there's no anything no nobody's like Lindsay. what are you doing <laughs> I do really like the scene when she does all of that and Coffee's like, yeah, I know that you're not supposed to be doing it. We all know. You're not fooling <laughs> us. We're smart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big fan, big fan. But, uh, you know, what does that even mean? Like, that's like watching someone break the law and being like, I know this is a transgression. It's like, what are you? Well, she's like posturing it to them as like, I'm your driver, so everything's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, girl, whatever. <laughs> Um, to pivot to something nearby that I really like, mm-hmm. on page 73, we have mm-hmm. some of the like initial interactions between everyone working on the rig. Uh, it says, Catfish swam near the window, looked in at Bud. Hey, Bud said. His headset picked up his voice and carried it to the drivers by UQC. Just a made-up thing. That was the Navy's designation for high-frequency sound transceivers. 
Radio was no good in the water, but close to deep core, they could use UQC, which translated their voices. I want to stop you for a second. Because I don't think it's made up bullshit. Hannah, I think, I think it's real. I think this is one of their like deep water, just like make em ups. They have a couple. Like first of all, when you get when you go down to the bottom of the ocean, there's danger of getting sick from. Um, I'm gonna get this wrong. I used to dive all the time. Pressure sickness. No, it's not pressure sickness. It's 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 the the thing you can get if you go too far down. I, I want to say it's nitrogen in your blood. And it causes mm-hmm. you to act drunk and act like too friendly and fun. And that's something you're supposed to watch out for deep down. I'm pretty sure pressure sick- sickness is just invented for this movie. You know, I also felt that way. And then the more I talk about people and the more like I read about this movie and the more I learn about James Cameron as a human man, I don't think he would make shit up just for narrative. He would find some real thing that makes you fucking crazy. Which is, like, I've always felt that the pressure sickness is obviously batshit insane, not true. But recently, I'm like, maybe it is a thing that happens. And I think things like the water that they breathe, that's a real piece of technology. Like, it's not all common, and it's not all taken off. Like, I watched this movie with my mom, and she was like, they don't do underwater drilling like this, do they? And I was like, they don't. But they could. I think this is real technology that they've decided is not, like, cost effective. Okay. So I we're I kind of both right. Here's what's up. <laughs> I was wrong in suggesting that this illness and this uh, acronym are made up. It's a real thing called high pressure nervous syndrome. Sy- sy- high pressure nervous syndrome. It. Yes. Okay. HPNS. H- how- however, I feel a little vindicated by the symptoms section, which says symptoms of HPNS include tremors. Myoclonic jerking, somnolence, EEG changes, visual disturbances, nausea, dizziness, and decreased mental performance. You could kind of read the last one into like you could go psychotic, but I don't think it's true. Well, I don't think that what's happening to Coffee is that he's going psychotic. Like, he is bug nuts crazy, but that's, like, who he is. Sure. Actually. Like, the the effects of this pressure sickness on him, I don't want to get away from where we're at in the book. Sure. Like, his, what what really pushes him over the edge is that he looks at himself and is like, oh, I'm not at full capacity. And he refuses to not be at full capacity. So he spirals. Right. Like, partial, partially it's pressure sickness, but mostly it's, like, him on himself making himself crazy right 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 we agree fine okay (laughs) i'm not so sold on uqc but i'll google it in a second i just know that like because jim cameron like loves underwater technology he's like invested in having it all be true that make that makes sense okay here we go they're talking about uqc the ability to talk underwater it made it a lot less lonely underwater when you could chatter a little bit So even though you didn't keep the UQC so busy that somebody with an emergency couldn't break in, it was a good thing every Mm -hmm. now and then to give a reminder that somebody else was still alive in the world. It wasn't just you and the hissing of the breathing regulator in your hat. You guys are milking that job, said Bud. This is what's so good. This is a very slight slight. Mm -hmm. This is a very, like... Hey, like you're really you're taking a little you're taking a while to finish that cereal. Like it's like not serious. Then it goes yeah. on to say a joke, of course. If they thought even for a second that Bud meant it as a serious criticism, Catfish would blow up 
and Findler would go into a slow burn that would last for days. But Bud knew how to say things, so they knew he was joking. Or maybe it's that they knew Bud so well that it didn't occur to them that he might mean it. They knew that if he had a real criticism, he'd say it to them in private, and unless it was an emergency, he'd find a way to bring it up without it feeling like a criticism at all. But it wasn't just a joke. This keeps going, but it's so good. Mm -hmm. Down here in Deep Core, every word counted. Everything you said had meaning, whether you wanted it to or not. These guys were doing boring, tedious maintenance and safety checking. A joke would help break it up, keep them alert. More important, though, was that it meant Bud was there. He was watching them. Not watching them like a zealous supervisor, hoping to catch them goofing off. Watching them more like a mother hen. Yeah, the best manager in the movie and world is his bad Bergman. The, there's more later on. Uh, and yeah, I, I have a bit. I have a bit bookmarked on this same sort of point on page seventy six, where they're talking about how like deeply difficult it is to be so far underground. That's what I was. Re- that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah, go right. there. That not only, like, you can die and you have to trust your team, but it's not like in an office where it's okay to have a couple of people you can't stand or just ignore, because what the hell, you're going home at five anyway. Down here, if you even suspect one of the guys you're with is stupid or careless, it poisons everything, because you're never sure he isn't going to get you killed. It's no place for polite hypocrisy. If you don't trust him, you just don't work with him. And when he notices you won't ever work with him, which is immediately the first time you refuse, that's the worst insult you can pay him. He hates you worse than anything in the world because you've told all the other guys in the crew that you think he's no damn good. And if he's no good in the eyes of the crew, then he knows right down in his most secret soul that he is truly worthless. He's so ashamed he wants to die, and he can't leave. Like, and that's just it. That's It's an perfect. incredible bit that's of writing. It's, it's yeah. like, the reason there's so much peace down here is because there's this complete understanding that no animosity can exist this is not earth we're on this is the international space station yeah you don't pick a guy to be on your team who you feel mediocre about like you love them or you don't work with them yeah all of this and it's all just like sprinkled in so cleanly like just at the right moment to be like here's the guys here's the gang they all get along really well soon something will be dropped in to mix up the pot yeah although they they stay pretty steadfast they're oh, not, for sure. They do the not turn on each other. The team is really good. Um, yeah, meanwhile, Lindsay and the SEALs are depressurizing, pressurizing. I like They're spending eight the hours together. Bookmarked. I know, I like it too. <laughs> it, does yours start at It Really Bothered Her? What page is that on? A 100. Oh, no, no. No, I have some stuff a little later, but you go ahead. Oh, I just have this. Uh, Lindsay tries to pal. I did around. have a little flag on this page. I just didn't. I didn't put a, a post-it note on it. I mean, the, uh, Hannah has more notes than I've ever seen her have. <laughs> the I'm always high, they're mental notes. Sure, I'm Those, always uh, marking pages. I'm to sure go back you're to. right that that's helpful. That mental notes do not help me. I flounder. We're different. If I didn't have... We're different that way. Uh, okay, so uh, Lindsay like <laughs> tried to pal around or talk with the seals a little bit while. Uh, in the compression chamber and they just weren't having it and uh, she thinks it really bothered her to see them all working together it was obvious they knew each other so well they hardly even had to complete sentences coffee didn't have to give orders either just lead them through a a review they all knew exactly what part to play Lindsay couldn't have put it into words but this was what bothered her most of all she'd never been part of a group like that the only time she ever came close was when she spent time with crews on Deep Core, especially Bud's crew. She knew she didn't really belong, 
but there was the illusion, especially during those hours, locked up together in the compression chamber. Singing, talking, laughing, playing cards. Even if she didn't really belong with them, she caught a glimpse of what it felt like. But most of her life had been like this. Watching a family from outside. For the longest time, she had believed closeness was a myth. Like her own family, her mother and sisters, the only way they were close was that her sisters allowed mother to run them like trained chimps. Her dad, he knew that these group things were all fake. All pep club and locker room fakery. And she goes on to say Buzz Crew is real and they're good. And the seals are real. And she's like, oh, fuck, it's really super possible and I can't do it. You, you sort of have to ignore the fact that Card has put so much vitriol for Lindsay in the book. Um, because some of these passages really stand well on their own. Like, you mm-hmm. know that he himself is like, it's because she's so terrible and she sucks. But you read a thing like that and, and it's connected to her prologue and it's really resonant. And I think that's one of the strengths of the book overall is that Card sets up these prologues about the characters and then he continues to weave them throughout. And sometimes when um, writers will do that and they're like, remember that thing I mentioned before? It's like a little condescending and stupid. And he does it really organically and gracefully. Do you remember Batman and Robin, the first one we read? Do you remember that no. in the prologue? I mean, this is like this is like 50 episodes ago. In the <laughs> prologue, without any explanation, Batman went to see Mr. Freeze when he was a normal guy who oh, was an yeah, Olympic... Uh-huh. What, uh, Long Jumper? Yeah, he's a Long Jumper. Mm-hmm. And it was just this weird page where he was like, and and when you jump, uh, make yourself into like an arrow of flesh and, and let gravity take you. And then Michael Jan Friedman didn't hit it a single more time for like 150 pages. And then in the last moment of the book, he was like, Batman made himself into a flesh torpedo. <laughs> yeah. No, I do remember that now. That was the most reminded. condescending one I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit like, aren't I smart? And you're like, buddy. <laughs> no. <laughs> not that smart. You really assume I read this book in a day because you did not reinforce <laughs> that at all. Yeah, you got to do a little bit more, buddy. Yeah, I that stuff's good. I love the the feeling that the seals like really like and respect each other that they're their own little unit and mm-hmm. they which is built up in Coffee's prologue but like they respect each other they like each other they know what they're doing and they aren't like dumb jarheads at all right like and i know that there's a whole point that like seals aren't that but like they could be yeah. <laughs> you know you could write them that way but they're like she's like you know about pressure sickness and they're like yeah we know about pressure sickness we're good and she's like you know how long we're gonna be in here and they're like yeah we know we We did our homework thank you we she's like do you want to ask questions about deep core and they're like no we've read about deep core we're good we're gonna talk to each other our whole thing is that we're 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 big boys who do their homework yeah we're smarty grown-ups so thank you but no i also like to think that all the ones but coffee are like i actually don't know about deep core but but if i need to daddy will tell me (laughs) daddy has a mustache and daddy will tell us the mustache never mentioned in the book. The mustache never mentioned in the book. Well, there, there might have been a timeline thing there, too, because in cards afterwards, he very proudly is like, and of course, my my backstories were shown to um to uh, yes. Ed Harris and, 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 and Mastriantano. And it's like, you wrote three. What happened to the third one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also 
there's very few physical descriptions in this book of characters. So mm-hmm. like, it's okay that he's not like Coffee's mustache. But it is a, a character choice that Michael Bean made. And I like it a lot. It's really, really good. It's a really heavy mustache. I do have a... <laughs> just so you don't think I'm too smart. I do have a note here when Lindsay realizes that Coffee has like a little metal suitcase of secrets. I don't know what it is she either. tries... It's secrets. It's just a secret suitcase? I think so. I mean, okay. she's intrigued in it because it's clearly like one of those suitcases in the movies that has a secret in it. Right. And while they're in compression, she's like, I want to get in there and see what's in there. And they seem busy, so I'll just poke my little nose in. And she tries to like open the latch with her foot. Right. Um, and Coffee just like slams it shut. Right. Right. Because he's smart enough to see what she's doing. Um, only after the lid was safely shut, Coffee's heavy boot resting on it, did he look up at her with half a smile and a twinkle in his eye. Curiosity killed the cat. Which my note says, hot! Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't want you to think that I'm a smart person who took smart notes. I took notes that were like, that's hot. That's a hot thing to do. <laughs> um, but then it goes on to be like, what bothered Lindsay most about it was that Coffee didn't seem annoyed about it the way before. Sure. That he's basically like read her... For filth, and is like, I no longer am interested in you or bothered by you. I get you. Um, and that bugs her. It didn't occur to her that maybe he smiled because he absolutely understood her. Exactly how much of a threat she posed and how to handle it. Like, he's just, he gets it. He knows. It's a good piece of writing, except that I don't really buy it for that character specifically. And Coffee or Lindsay? Coffee. That, that he... Okay. It, because I, I think that he has kind of not a great read on people and i think he does sort of misread her and how much she's going to tip over the edge and really come for him he still has power over her but like i think if he didn't get pressure sick he probably would be he does read her correctly okay fair let's talk about the the pressure pressure sickness sickness really throws him into a tizzy let's talk about the pressure sickness the only thing i want to say because it happens on like the next page yeah the only thing i want to say about it is that it works way better in the book because bean's performance in the movie is great He's he's amazing. He he really tips over the edge in like an incredible way. The way they choose to visually show that his hand is shaking is terrible. It's beyond terrible. Oh my god. Hannah, you like the way to do this. Look, I'm no filmmaker and if I made a movie it would be much worse than the abyss. But like <laughs> the way to do this is to like have him doing something with his hand and like notice that there's like a very slight tremor to it and you can have an ultra close-up followed by a reaction shot of the eyes where he's like oh no him two times in the movie holding his hand up in front of him and being like not good not smart i am not bothered by it at all one because i think tiny tremors asking an actor to do itty bitty tremors is not easy right like slightly more is is this is me More. coming for Cameron, not me coming for Bean. Okay. I also think that a l- most of the times when you see his shaky hands, he's like doing stuff and he like puts down a thing and then lifts his hand off of like a handle and you see that he's shaking and he sees that he's shaking. It's not really that he's like, look at these. Like, I think that's an unfair read of what Cameron- No, he does it. I mean, Cameron is saying, brazen. look at these. Yeah. But I don't think there's ever a point where like everyone is like, oh boy, shaky, huh? No, no, I think it's... both times he is going to himself, wow, look at that fucking shake. Like, it's like, I don't know. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I mean, the, okay, fine, fine. 
Cameron's not a subtle filmmaker, too. Like, we simply must acknowledge he's not into subtlety. He's going to give you broad strokes. That's kind of what he's about. Um, and so for him to be like, did you notice that he has pressure sickness? Mm-hmm. Like, thank you, Jim. I did notice. You made it very clear. Here's the thing. The shot <laughs> I don't like in the movie is a banger of a passage. Is this on page 111? Hell yeah. Same passage, baby. <laughs> Coffee's hands never shook. He knew immediately what it meant. He was at least as aware of the danger of HPNS as Lindsay. He had the jitters. Did he have it bad? Would he become delusional? He paused a moment, thinking through the alternatives. Would he know if he had a lapse in judgment? He should immediately turn command over to who? Wilhite would be true to the mission, but he didn't have the initiative, the drive. He wouldn't be able to push these civilians into doing what was needed. Shenick had the strength for it, but he didn't really have the brains. He wasn't good at looking at the whole situation and making the right decision. Monk? Monk could do it, but Coffee felt uneasy about him, felt that Monk was holding something back. Not much, but there was just a tiny part of him that didn't belong to the team, a tiny part of him that resisted discipline. Not that Monk had ever done anything wrong, had ever rebelled or disobeyed, but Coffee had felt it, that even when Monk was working right alongside the rest of the team, sweating his guts out, doing his all, there was something inside him that was just watching, observing it, but not part of it. Or maybe I'm paranoid. Maybe the HPNS is making me find weaknesses in all my men. Find the reasons to mistrust them. After all, I must have trusted them enough to pick them for the original assignment in the Central American Mountains. I didn't have any qualms about them until I got down here, until I got pressurized. No, Coffee knew himself, knew exactly what he was capable of, and he knew his men. His judgment was not impaired. He was the only man here who understood all that was at stake, who was able to deal with any contingency. If the mission was to succeed, he had to lead it. What Coffee didn't know about himself was his absolute reluctance to surrender command. He might follow general orders, but when it came down to the split-second, moment-by-moment tactical decisions of an operation, he had never, ever yielded to anyone else's judgment. It had never been necessary. He had never been in a situation where decisions mattered and he wasn't making them. He didn't realize how difficult it would be for him to surrender command even if he was in perfect control of himself. And he wasn't in perfect control of himself. He clenched his trembling fingers into a fist. Couldn't let anybody see this. It would jeopardize the mission to let anybody know he had the jitters. He picked up the case and carried it out to the sub bay. Things would be fine. What I love about that is that he is both totally aware of what's happening to him and totally unaware of what's happening to him. And that immediately, like, steps out of the compression chamber and is like, oh, I'm fucked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I can't be fucked, so it'll be fine. Is amazing. This is a trope I don't really have a handle on when I like it, when I don't, what makes me like it, what Mm -hmm. makes me not. This is maybe my favorite passage in the book, but similar passages have really pissed me off in the past. There's a, a passage from Heat 2, the best book we've ever read, um, where <laughs> Hannah's like hiding. The <laughs> There's a passage from Heat 2 where the villain like sees, uh, you know, someone from his past grown up and he's immediately like, she was a little rude to me. Wait, does that mean I know her? Oh, I think she must be an enemy of mine. What if she's a grown up version of an enemy of mine from the past? Oh, I figured out who it was. Oh, I figured out what her vendetta is. Oh, I figured out what she's going to do next. I mean, it's bad. But 
I like that this book is like it's the opposite of 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 playing dumb for your audience. I'm guessing when I see the the handshake in the movie, oh, this is going in a particular direction. Not only does the book go, this is going in a particular direction, it has the character go, oh no, this is going in a particular direction. Should I consider course correcting? No, it's the children who are wrong. Yeah, Coffee has a couple moments where he's like, am I wrong? No, it's the children who are wrong, <laughs> uh, which is really, really funny and good. Yeah, I I do feel like in the movie, uh, you see the shakes and he sees the shakes, but I don't know that I always thought that he immediately was like, oh no, I have the pressure sickness, mm-hmm. where this makes it so explicit that he is aware of it and has decided to not tell anybody. Sure. Which is dangerous. We all know this. The pressure sickness. I'm just looking through my notes here. At some point, uh, Bud and Coffee have a disagreement. And mm-hmm. Coffee's like, I think it's after the umbilical is is severed. Uh, and, and, you know, Coffee basically caused the whole plot of the movie to happen with this fuck up. Yeah. And Coffee's like, I had orders. Like, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to do the right thing. But, you know, I had orders. And they're, part of the good thing about Bud's backstory, which is just made up for this book, is <laughs> the book's like, Bud's dad was a Marine. He knew that you can, like, exercise discretion within orders. Yeah. <laughs> Both at Bud's like, you know you didn't have to do that. And that even Coffee is like, I didn't have to do that. Yes. Why did I do yes. that? Yes, yes, Um. Yes, yes. I have that bookmarked, but we can get to it in a minute. We don't have to do it right this time. I, I mean, I don't We really... can continue to move chronologically. We can go wherever. I mean, I, they I'm... introduce the rest of the crew... Including the rat, Beanie. Beanie is forced to breathe liquid, a thing that in the movie is real and upsetting. What do you mean real and um, upsetting? They That's a real piece of technology, and they really did that to that rat. That's a thing you can and do? And it is, yeah. That can't be true. It is true. <laughs> it's not like a thing they do a lot, but it's like the the when they talk about the breathing fluid, they're like, oh, this scientist developed it and tested it and, and those are real guys who holy, really did that like it's not moly. a it's not a technology they use like a lot but it is a thing and for the movie they like got enough of it to do it with the rat and you're seeing the rat actually go through that what experience the, that ca- wh- it's 1989 how did you think they did no that? i'm not caught up on the animal abuse part Okay, I'm, I'm caught up on the. It's I do real. think it's animal abuse to do that to no, a rat. No, it is. It is. I mean... It is. I, I, I just, I just believe it would happen. I'm not. I'm not signing off. I'm just stuck up on on the the fact that that technology is real. It is, and it's really fucking crazy. Wow. And they do it with the rat. It's very upsetting to like watch that rat in the movie, like <laughs> breathe the water, the liquid. Yeah. But it's doing it. Um, I do really appreciate that, like. While they're doing it with the rat, because Monk does it, and he's really like, that's no big deal, don't worry about it, your rat's gonna be fucking fine, stop freaking out. And then there's a part where he's like, uh, it's pretty lousy, actually. Uh, it's a really unpleasant experience, and I feel kind of bad, and if I leave it underwater too long, it'll get brain damage, and that'll be really <laughs> shitty. <laughs> like, that'll be a really shitty thing to do. Like, there's a there's a lot of little hints, like character moments, whatever, where Monk is like, I like these people, I'm having a real relationship with them. In a way that the other seals are not, which leads up to his final, you know, elements in the story, which are, are nicely placed. We are on track right now because I, 
thought UQC wasn't real. I thought HPNS wasn't real. And apparently, yeah. breathing liquid is real. By the end of this episode, it's you're going to be like, there are builders. They're down there. <laughs> yeah, I did send Andrew a link to the UQC. It's real. That's wild. It's real. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm just mm-hmm. looking through my notes. They go down to the submarine. Yeah, I have a couple notes that are just like good, well-written lines that I like, but we don't need to just like read those. That's sure. silly. Oh, here's a point. Remember we were talking about casual misogyny? Yeah. Here's a part where I think they're they're getting ready to go down to the submarine and Coffee is like looking at everybody getting ready and he's like, oh, wow, they're a well-oiled machine, right? The only one who wasn't part of that team was this Lindsay bitch, and that wasn't Brigman's fault. She was crazy with self- selfishness, the kind of person who was incapable of subordinating her own judgment to someone else's, blah, blah, blah. And it's like pretty gnarly towards her. Um, and like, I get that she is kind of a bitch or whatever. Coffee is not the kind of guy who I would expect this kind of casual misogyny from. I agree. And it took me out of the moment that I was like, if anything, he would like respect that she's tough. And that she is a human being, woman or not. But to casually refer to her within, like, his headspace as a bitch really, like, mm, left a bad taste I wonder in my if, mouth. I wonder if Card invented sort of in the wrong direction from that moment where he duct tapes her in the movie. I mean, the moment in the book where that happens, another moment where I was like, Whoa! Um, I don't know if I have it. I'm sure I do somewhere. But basically, she's like, oh, he's gonna rape me. I knew he always wanted to do that. Um, which, like, no, I don't think that is in his character at all. Yeah. He's a non-sexual person, basically. And it really feels like, no, what? I do think that the passage you read has a little merit because it, it shows that um, Coffee is, like, accusing her of things he himself is suffering from. He's being like, mm-hmm. this, this, you know, this, this, this woman, she'll, she'll never yield to someone else's judgment. It's like, well, the narrator just told yeah, us well, you've never, ever done that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It, it just was a thing where I think if it didn't have that word bitch in it, I'd be like, this is perfectly fine. Yeah. But that's such a like nasty term. And the way it's been used in this book is particularly like women be bitches. Yes. Um, that it didn't feel right that he would use that kind of terminology. Like he can read her and be like, I don't like her. I don't like what she's doing, even though it's what I'm doing. But I don't see him as a person who is like a misogynist, actually. No, I agree. I totally agree. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on the fo- on the following page, I have a note that says, no, it's the civilians who are wrong. Another <laughs> moment where Coffee's like, am I wrong? No, it's the civilians. Trembling hands didn't mean his judgment was impaired, and it hadn't been a mistake to do what he did at the moon pool. No, sir, that wasn't bad judgment. That was good judgment. He had to get control, had to make sure they knew this was not a civilian operation. Like, literally, he's like, did I make a horrible mistake? No. <laughs> That's when he yells at them. And Bud's like, you can't yell at my crew like that. So you're you're what, where in the book right now? I'm on 139. Okay, should we go to the submarine? Let's go to the submarine. So I mean, we got to speed up. We got to move a little faster. I when, think. Well, I think I think the episode is going to be a little top heavy because of all the prologues and stuff. And we talked about the afterwards true. up front. Um, That's true. 149. <clears throat> they're on the submarine. Coffee gets his hands on the uh, the nuclear key or whatever. Good passage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yet he still knew the trust had passed. Oh, I'll I'll start earlier. So did Coffee. 
He reached into the neck of the man's shirt and pulled out the chain that held the missile-arming key. It was the power of nuclear war, right there in a little piece of metal. That's how much America trusted its boomer captains. Boomer, I guess, meaning the, the submarine? No, I think the generation. Oh, that's funny. I think the um, baby boom has always been referred to. Oh, I know, I know that for sure. It just, it just isn't, isn't coffee a boomer? No, he's the, the quote unquote silent generation of people who were born in the late sixties and seventies. Okay, cool. The key was useless now. The safeguard systems aboard the sub would never be used. Coffee had to take the key so that there was no chance of it ever falling into enemy hands. He'd never use the key himself. Yet still, of course, he wouldn't. Of course how? What, what use would he have for he that? He wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. Yet He's still, he knew the trust had passed to him. He held onto the key and gave it a hard yank. The captain would feel no pain now from the key coming off, but Coffee felt it like a pain himself to have it. It was so light he could hardly tell he was holding it. It was so heavy that he could barely hang on. I've got the power to make one of these babies blow, thought Coffee. And if we do get to phase three, I'll have to do it. That's something no boomer captain in history had ever had to do. Actually use the key and set a warhead off. Just maybe a- you're right about the use of boomer in this specific instance. I, yeah, maybe they're talking about people who command bombs. Definitely. I take it back. I think that's the boom. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think you're... I'll go, I'll go with you on that one in, in this case. I don't really have many thoughts on that passage. I just thought it was good. It's a good passage. I mean, I think it's nice that throughout the book, even as Coffee is becoming a bug nuts villain, the book makes a point to be like, he's a human man. He feels things. Like, he's still a person under there. Yeah. You know, he's not just a villain. Uh, and I, I appreciate that. And I think Michael Bean is doing that in his performance as well. So I like to see it in both places. Anyway... Jammer gets scared by a builder, mm-hmm. and they have to take him out of there. They evacuate him. He is not well. What else is going on? There's like a chunk of pages here where I don't have a lot of notes. I, I mean, I, I have like passages from the Jammer thing bookmark, but like we, we we shouldn't hit all of these. No, I mean, we could really get caught up forever just like reading passages of this book back and forth through each other. But it is good. And those are moments where like you get the perspective of the builders who are like, oh, let me talk to this person. Let me check in. Oh, it didn't go so good. Let me go home. (laughs) Um, You know, meanwhile, the hurricane on the surface, which is alien produced, is wrecking havoc and they have to disconnect from their ship, uh, at which point things go really fucking wrong. Yeah, with the crane. With the crane. Because Coffee has been authorized to go get a nuclear warhead, and he takes their big... He really interprets this as, go get it right now. Uh, yeah, and this is the pressure sickness. Right. <laughs> he like is lo- has lost the level of judgment to say, like, it can wait until everybody's safe. Um, so they take the flatbed, and meanwhile, Bud's like, you gotta bring back the flatbed. It's the only thing that can disconnect us. They don't get back in time. Like, they don't get disconnected properly. It pulls the crane down on top of them. And then the crane, like, drags them, which is very scary. What a terrifying thing to be at the bottom of the ocean and be like, well, we might just tumble into a trench and be lost forever. Scary. Get crunched. Something I feel like we're we're not touching on a bunch because the passages themselves are, like, pages and pages long is <laughs> yeah. we get so much stuff from the builders about their thought mm-hmm. process, about their witnessing the humans like 
do this, do that, do we like the humans, they're so prone to war, blah, 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 blah. Something I do like, just because I thought it was funny, was on page 209, uh, the builders are weighing, like, what do we do about the humans and the nuke and everything, and it says, the builders were in no immediate danger. On the bottom of the sea, there would be little direct damage, but the planet would die at the surface, and within a few years, that death would lead to stagnation, then starvation at the bottom of the world. The builders would have to leave this world with their work unfinished. The plan was for each, each city to become an ark, rising out of mm -hmm. the ocean to soar upward into space, flying off in search of other worlds where they could start the cycle again. But that was still a long time away. The only city that was ready for flight was this one, here in the Cayman Troch. And it was only ready because it had arrived here ready. Because it had arrived here ready. It was the first from which all the other cities had been founded. So if they had to leave, all they could do was gather together the memories of the other cities and then embark on its voyage as a single arc. This, this I mentioned it earlier, but the end of the movie just really cracks me up with him going down further and further and it being so emotional and him getting all fucked up by the pressure. And it's like, we as the reader are like, it's not gonna, Nuke's not going to hurt him. He'll be fine. I, I do wonder if, like, they dropped a nuke. Like, Coffee's plan is to drop a nuke into the middle of their city. Yeah. If that would maybe hurt them, you know? But, like, a nuclear war on the surface would not hurt them. Interesting. I kind of i am of the opinion that it would not hurt them. I, I'm, I'm willing to say that I agree with you. Because I think the story <laughs> still makes like sense. they're just, like, of a difference. There's so yeah, much yeah. unknown that, like, mm -hmm. we're still, like, we have to stop war with an alien race. And the alien race is sitting there going, like... And, but they look at us being like, you're going to sacrifice your own life to do something that doesn't matter because you were worried about us? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's not bad. Yeah. And then just just the, this is a short one, but. Yeah. Uh, the, the turn I really like in this book with the aliens is that early on they have this opinion that a lot of science fiction has that I find very exhausting, which is like humanity they're so prone to war blah 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 i was talking about this on some other episode yeah, I it's think. the when the earth stood still thing sure it, but it's the it's, day the earth stood still. it's become this thing that like so much sci-fi apes and it's so annoying because i'm pretty convinced i don't love like the political climate of the world but i am pretty convinced that if we found other civilizations they'd either be like we are going through similar things or they'd be like we have reached enlightenment after many years of going through similar things. Like, we get it. The book does take a turn where the aliens are like, you know what, not only do these humans have good in them, but also, uh, it says here, the worst of it, though, was this. The crisis that these humans face was not entirely of their own making. Their weapons, their enmities had all existed before. But from their broadcasts and messages, the builders knew now how much of their fear and anger was caused by things the builders themselves had inadvertently done. We are not responsible for their nature, said the city. We didn't make their weapons. But they had those most terrible weapons for a long time, as they measured time, through many wars, and yet they never used them once they saw, or they never used them once they saw how terrible they were, until we destroyed their satellite. And they're like, mm -hmm. I like the, the, the aliens mea culpa on that. Yeah, it is a uh, when the the one alien who like saves catfish and then gets sort of like banished yeah. to like a shitty job, um, who eventually is like, um, 
I have a thought about the humans. <laughs> and that, like, the, the overall alien concept was like, well, the human's individuality is like a detriment. Right. And this one alien is like, actually, I think it's good. Have we considered that it? it's kind of amazing? It kind of changed me to experience it. Um, and they're all like, actually, yeah, that's a compelling argument. And a, a big thing that the book posits that is is incredible is like the reason that they pivot on this that they go from like humans suck to actually humans kind of good is because they realize that the concept of death as it exists for humanity does not exist for them they are some sort of alien entity that is like they're a hive mind hannah i don't know if you've ever heard this fact before but in a in a in a given area all aspens share the same uh root network (laughs) i'll kill you i'll Um, kill you (laughs) <laughs> and um it's just be nonsensical to our listeners um good aspen in joke this is essentially the like aspens of aliens they're like they are themselves you can look at one or the other and be like there's that builder it goes over there or whatever but they have the capacity to sort of meld together and share thoughts and when they die uh another builder swoops in, takes all their memories, and is like, this will live on. It's even kind of success- mm-hmm. suggested that, like, sensationally you live on and you can experience some more life post-death. Yeah. But the concept that there is, like, a future that you've lost out on does not occur to them at all until Lindsay dies. And they're like, oh, it's over. A future that you can we- lose out on and also that when someone you love dies... They're not still with you, kinda. Right, right. They right. are gone for you, and that's yes, that really changes them for and, the aliens. And it makes them go, okay, wait, 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 wait. If, if my mom, when she died, was really gone, like for real, for real, maybe I'd go to war over that. Maybe I'd try to stop <laughs> that with war. They're like, okay, actually, maybe feeling that your mother doesn't love you anymore would drive you a little bit crazy. (laughs) And then maybe when you're under pressure sickness, it would make you even crazier. I mean, this Lindsay trying to communicate what she has experienced, and the aliens are like, this is going to be so easy for her to Mm -hmm. like convince them because we showed it to her. And they just like, uh, like the the communication thing with aliens is always what I find very interesting. Like um, the, the stuff in Arrival, that like not only do they have like a language based on circles, but they're experiencing all of time at once and therefore right, like right, right. the way we communicate with them is like almost impossible. That's like so fucking cool. Um, and certainly like the number one issue we will have when and if we ever meet aliens is like, how do we talk to you? Like, right. How do we express that we're friendly even? We haven't figured it out. I mean, no. we just don't know. We don't know. Our space probes that have like music and math on them, like who knows if that's going to work? Yeah. They say math is universal, but our symbols are certainly not universal. Anyway. No, it's good. I just have so many thoughts in my head at once. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much that we, like, haven't touched on at all, like, the rest of the crew and their deal, or, like, the, the interpersonal relationships happening there, which are fun and interesting. I do think that in, in you know, in the spirit of doing these three prologues, Card does center these three characters to the detriment oh, yeah. of the other characters. Yes, certainly. I'd love to know a little bit more about Hippie. Yeah. And One Night, um, who I think are the most sort of like interesting side characters in the story. Definitely. Like I like Catfish or whatever, 
But um, prior to reading the book, I couldn't have told you, like, which of the guys is Catfish. Max and I were saying when we were watching uh, Lindsay be revived at the end of the movie, we're like, you know what's getting me in this scene is One Night's reaction to this. Kimberly Scott is wonderful. I love her as an actress, and I'm always happy when she pops up in something. I don't know if she's done anything lately, but I love her. She, there's like a run in the early 90s where she's just like doing movies, and I, I love her. She's in Flatliners. She's great. Okay, here's part of the Lindsay sucks parade that, if it was in a vacuum, <laughs> would be a good passage. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's not in a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, this is Bud, the he. When he saw she was listening, he said, all I'm saying is when you're hanging on by your fingernails, you don't go waving your arms around. She knew that. She knew that Bud was the best at keeping people calm, getting them to work smoothly together. But this time, just this once, he needed to stop being responsible for creating everybody else's reality and let somebody else change reality for him. Look, I saw something, she said. I'm not going to go back in there and say I didn't see it when I did. I'm sorry, please. He turned his head then faced her again, squinting at her the way he did when he was trying not to be angry. You are the most stubborn woman I ever knew. It was true, and at this moment she regretted it. All their time together she'd been stubborn over everything, even the things that didn't matter, so that now, when it was important, he didn't think she was insisting on this because it was absolutely true. He thought she was insisting on it because she was Lindsay, because she insisted on having her way in everything. For the first time, she realized the price she paid for so rarely being willing to bend. She didn't know how to make him see the difference, except to admit the truth. Yes, I am, she said, but I need you to believe me right now. Very relatable paragraph for anybody who feels like they've dug in too much in a specific friendship or relationship. Yeah, It just kind of sucks that it comes after everything else with Lindsay Everything with Lindsay in this book is good if it's the only time it's done, except for the thing where she gets she gets misogynied on the surface. Like, yeah, everything else is like, wow, insightful character piece. But taken as a whole, it's like, I hate her. It's like an author being like, I have to yeah, write she's this like character. So insecure and yeah. so bad, and like, yeah, I really don't like it. Um, hey guys, stop. Bit of a cat Sorry. fight in the background. Little, literally, um. Yeah, and, like, the idea that she has been so stubborn that, like, now when she's like, take me at face value. And they're like, why should we, though? Right. It's very hard to, like, yeah, I I understand where everyone else is coming from. Because she's just, like, not a person you trust, actually. Sure. She's a person who's going to stab you in the back to get her deep core driller built. Right. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I just... I feel like there's a way to write that sensation without being like, and she really regretted being such a cold cunt all the time, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, undercuts her as a See, character. See, I, I actually, really I like that sentiment if it's if it's about a character, not specifically mm-hmm. about Lindsay. I like the idea of someone, you know, male, female, or otherwise being like, I, I cried wolf. I cried wolf too much. It is actually coming to bite me in the ass. It's possible yeah. to emotionally cry wolf, which is something, you know, that is maybe totally. under discussed um, as a phenomenon. But it, it, it's just the fact that it's on page 237 of a, geez, this Lindsay is a fucking pain tome. <laughs> yes, agree. Totally agree. 
there is sort of slightly before that. She talks to Bud and Bud's like, I can't go to coffee with your fucking intuition. That's nothing. Have you met that guy? And then they do it anyway. And coffee's like, I believe that her, but I believe it was a Russian sub. And I think we should blow it up. Yes. But like, they're like, he'll never, he'll never believe you. And he's like, I immediately believe you. But not that it's nice. It's definitely not nice. Nothing in my life has ever been nice. I like when Coffee sees the alien tendril and he's like, she thinks this is better than Russians. It's like space Russians. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is like, it makes sense that his character would think that and feel that way. Like he is the kind of guy who correctly would not think that aliens are inherently friendly. (laughs) Like, I like how much like in a different version of this movie, he is the hero. Like, if he's not pressure sick or whatever. But he is the guy who's like, this is a danger and we have to stop it. These aliens are bad. Uh, I like that duality, you know. You must despise this coffee thing on 245. Mm, I don't know. I do. My flag on page 245 just says rat boy. Okay, so just just a taste <laughs> so of this. I don't know. It says coffee like when he's going. We've got two really good bug out coffee passages. I, I feel like almost the rest of the episode is mm-hmm. going to be like a, a coffee report. But... he's the best he is watching the monitors and like feeling very paranoid and feeling like everybody's against him and they are so and and they are coffee refused to take any of the things they said personally is the first line then he's thinking little weasel rat boy thinks i'm crazy fine but the crazy one is you boy i like that it's two lines in a row where he's like i'm not gonna take anything personally but fuck that Little man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The couple of times that he calls Hippie a rat boy, I'm like, he is a rat boy. But but then we get this. This is what I assumed you Mm -hmm. would hate because it just seems out of step with his character where he says, but the uh, letting her talk you into acting out her plan for you. You start letting a woman give you your instructions in life. You never know where it's going to lead. It'll turn you into something you never meant to be because women don't think of men as people. I finally caught on to that. They think of us as particularly useful machines. You and that ROV rat boy, you're both the same to her. She can't tell where one leaves off and the other begins. You watch a woman with a machine. They'll act the same way they do with you. They'll try to make the machine do what they want, and when it doesn't, they'll yell at it, they'll turn their back and pout, they'll cry, they'll do all the same shit they do with you. Only the machines are smarter than us. They just sit there and let it all roll off their backs. Machines don't have to pay attention to women because machines don't want to fuck them. And machines don't have no mamas. So Big Geek doesn't give a shit if that bitch walks off and leaves him and starts using Little Geek instead. A machine can't be betrayed. I mean, I don't love it. Um, the way that he talks himself into making it about his mom. I like the mom kind thing a of lot. A, a good twist yes. of writing. But he's like, women, 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 romantic, you want to fuck them, but actually it's about my mother. I who think, I think me. it's the specific turn of phrase that it's like, you know, machines, machines don't want to fuck them, machines. It feels, it feels a little like I'm like watching a Jeff Foxworthy special. Yeah, no, I don't like most of this yeah like i think if this instead of being like women don't think of men as people it was civilians don't think of the military as people right that tracks much more with his character to me um especially because like we have no concept of his relationships with women outside of his mother totally and in the movie we have zero concept that he has any relationship with women period 
he is like a that is not part of the character as we experience him and so to get these things where he's like actually i fucking hate women and i'm like no i don't believe that right. <laughs> it doesn't feel right to me i agree yeah i don't love that i do like that he exclusively thinks of hippie as a rat boy <laughs> yeah no that is nice that is that is a good that's a good bit of writing the the thing that's tough to co- convey about this book speaking about it on a podcast is like it is it is so dense it is there's so much within these pages that even though a lot of the stuff we're saying is negative it's a very seductive book it's like any given page has so much to sink our teeth into that even though i yeah. can point out 28 things i think are are offensive or 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 just read the movie wrong there's like 250 that i think are amazing yes yeah, yeah. There's a lot of just like really, really good stuff in here. And it's like a line here, a line there. Um, we were talking about when Coffee sees the alien tendril and is like, certainly that's uh, bad. Yeah, <laughs> that's obviously yeah, 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 bad. Yeah, yeah. I think slightly before that, it's on page 255. He sees it and is like, then they saw the probe rising out of the moon pool like a giant tentacle reaching through the door. It was unbelievable. Coffee dropped his gun, recoiled from the thing. He couldn't deal with it. I'm gone, he thought. My brain is completely gone, and I'm seeing things that can't be there. Which is another level of, like, self-cognizance that, like... Yeah. Is very compelling to follow throughout the book. That he's trying to track his own deterioration, and has this moment where he's like, well, this has to be it. This has (laughs) to be the end of it, because, like, this is unreal. And then not only is it real, it is the scariest and worst possible version of the thing. It's an alien. There was no protocol for dealing with impossible underwater monsters. Like, I, and I, I feel bad because I guess, you know, like, Bud's a great character and Lindsay's a great character. And I think almost everybody in this movie is giving a great performance of an interesting character. Um, and the book is also giving us interesting characters. But, like, Coffee is, like, the most interesting character. Well, I think the reason... Doing interesting things. I think the reason we're fixating on him so much is because... He's very hot. Well, the the prologues <laughs> give us backstories for everyone, and they put everyone on a specific arc. They say this is how they became who they are. Coffee's mm-hmm. the only one in the movie going on a dramatic arc. Like, within, yeah. within the present day story, he's the one who's really on an extreme trajectory. Whereas Bud is a guy who heroically deals with changing situations, and mm-hmm. though the writer of the book hates her, Lindsay is much the same. She's like dealing I mean, with Lindsay stuff as it is comes. Internally coming to understand what love actually feels like. Sure. Like Lindsay is going through an arc that like softens her immensely in a way that is like almost misogynistic too. But they're like she can't be tough anymore. Like at the end of the movie, she's so soft and so sweet and yeah. so loving. That you're like, this is not the same person. Yeah, yeah, like, She's yeah, obviously yeah. been on a journey, but like, it's okay to be like, I love you, and my deep core rig is very important. I wonder if, <laughs> I wonder know? if Card was like, maybe the aliens switch her with like a nice, and it looks like her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and like, you're so correct that like, coffee is going through like a personal crisis, a decision making crisis, an action movie crisis. 
he like is like so flop sweaty cutting himself like going through shit where you're just like this guy all of the things that he does in the movie are incredible passages i'm actually going to skip the cutting himself one just for just for time and exhaustion let's go to him pulling on the chain which is incredible Oh, the best incredible so i also have another note on just really 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 fast sure no no i I don't need to get off or anything i'm just trying no no yeah no, I know, I know. And I do, that's an amazing passage and we have to get to it. I just, as I'm flipping through my own notes, I do want to share with you another little, Hannah's not really that smart and it's important that we flag that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have a note on page 263 where coffee like drags Hippie to go set up one of the ROVs or something. Whatever. He says, did you sniff something? Did you rat boy? And then with his left hand, Coffee grabbed the front of Hippie's shirt and jerked him down the corridor. And my note says, hot. (laughs) I think that's in the movie. That it's hot? Yeah. Yeah, that it's hot. I think it's hot in the movie. It is hot. I mean, by this point in the movie, also, like, Michael Bean's shirt has been ripped in a very sexy way. So he has, like, one shoulder out for, like, the last half of the movie. And I'm like, hmm. And I like that he's not beefy. No. Like he's like slim and trim and like very like unmuscular. And I'm just like, this is a guy I like to see. I think about that all the time. Like people, people talk about like going through life being like, you know, ever since 2016, I walk around and wonder who, who, who's a, who has horrifying beliefs that's right near me that I don't know about. I I do the same (laughs) thing, but I'm walking through the world being like, some of these people want to fuck the rock. (laughs) Which is insane. Can you imagine? Which is insane. Yeah. Ugh, Some of these crazy. people go to see Skyscraper in theaters, and then they leave and they're like, oh, that man. <laughs> I want to experience life sexually with him. Like, ugh. As a, as, really as a mostly straight person, and I don't say that to like, to, to like be like, I'm straight, don't worry about it. I say it because I think it'd be disingenuous to be like, I'm somewhere in the middle. As a, sure. as a mostly straight person, I find that when I'm like, that when I'm like kind of turned on by a man, it's usually like a sinewy, muscular one. Yeah, I mean, I think the way Michael Bean is built in the movie The Abyss, mm-hmm. he is fit and trim, but he is the smallest of the Marines. He is not like, I'm shocked that nobody made him put on some more muscle. Right. Like, it's really, he's just like a little slim, trim, little gentle guy. And it makes him a little bit scarier, a little bit more threatening, a little bit more sinister, that he isn't just like a muscle guy. Yeah. Like he is soft-spoken and has a sort of a gentle cadence, and he will kill you. <laughs> and that's so good. <laughs> it's so good. What a combo. It's so good. Okay. He's just the... Mm, Michael Bean. For the listener, mm. if you've seen the movie, the scene where Coffee is sitting... Yeah, near the moon pool, and uh, he's just pulling on the chain, just losing his damn mind, and like, you know, Bud in two minutes is going to sneak up on him. Super sweaty, like super, like crazy eyes. <laughs> this yeah. is this is the passage. Mm-hmm. Coffee sat there, pulling on the winch chain, trying to keep from crying, not making it. Why was he crying? That wasn't rational. That suggested he wasn't in control. But he was in control. He'd done everything right. Every single thing. He'd followed orders perfectly. But he didn't have any orders about what you do when you suddenly got a tentacle thicker than your body coming out of the deep. And you realize these guys have power that makes our stuff look silly. Except 
you got a nuclear warhead and a delivery system, and you can take them out right now, only you don't have any orders. Great, great use of a run-on sentence from Card. Yeah, yeah. Just really, really, just really conveys the, 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 the loss of control. There's nobody yeah. to tell you that this is the right thing. Nobody to say, all right, coffee, this is what's right for your country. This is what's right for us, so do it. Instead, he had these other guys, these other civilians telling him not to. Telling him he's crazy. Well, he wasn't crazy. He was maybe stressed, maybe a little bit of HPNS. Just a little bit. But he was still functioning just fine, because if he wasn't, how did he get control of these people so easy? Only now he was down here and he was alone. Why did you go off and leave me when I needed you? I never would have left you. Never. I was with you forever. Just you and me. And you married that asshole. And when it came right down to it, you preferred him. And I wasn't worth shit to you. And I made Daryl Woodward into a brain-damaged moron for you, Mom. I did everything you wanted, and you left me down there, all alone in the water, with this goddamn warhead. And I'm supposed to know whether to send it down into hell or not. So good. Woo! And, like, it's a thing where, like, in the moment in the movie, you're like, this guy is a sick puppy. Yeah. He is so sick. Yeah. And this moment in the book is like, yes, he's a sick puppy, and it's so sad. Like, it gives him such a rich inner life that he is like going through seven crises at once and it's sad and i want him to like pick himself up and like be okay and he won't Um, (laughs) but that's the stuff that like makes the tension of his character like really really compelling i also think that this is the crux of why he sort of loses his mind aside from the pressure sickness is Mm -hmm. he's a person who from childhood has wanted to be beholden to someone or something And he has wanted, in his own way, to find love, which to him is to be owned and to be controlled. When his mother lets him go, when his mother no longer needs him, he decides, okay, the military literally exists for people to choose to be beholden to it. So I choose that. Mm -hmm. But what he doesn't consider is that military action requires that you get your orders and then you go out and do them. And in the second part, you are your own man interpreting your version of, like, the word of the Lord, right? Like, you're just going out being like, I'm supposed to kill this person. This is my mission. How I do it is a changing circumstance that I have to adapt to. While he Mm -hmm. has probably run into very small examples of this before and been like, how should I adapt, blah, 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 things he could handle, he is in the worst scenario he personally could be in, which is something where he is so clearly cut off from the thing he is supposed to love, and the situation is changing so rapidly and uncontrollably that he- And the stakes are so high. Totally. Totally. He's like doing his best to be like, this is probably what daddy military would want me to do. Probably, right? Probably, right? Right? Yeah. And he like doesn't have enough um, of a core sense of himself to know what is right and what to do. Right. And he's undergoing pressure sickness. Yeah, he's just spiraling. He's totally lost. We can't read everything in the book, but there's a good passage I won't read that's like right after it where Ed is considering Mm -hmm. hitting him with the pipe. And he's like, is it right to hit a man who's pressure sick when at the surface he would probably be a completely different man? Good stuff. I have that flagged as well. I think there's also a part where Coffee tries to kill him and Bud thinks like, why? Because I saw you crying? That's not a good (laughs) enough reason to kill me. There's something, I don't know if I have it, but there is something that he's like, yeah you're a person and like stop freaking out at me 
Um, just because I watched you experience an emotion. I'm shocked I don't have that. I love to see a man cry in a movie. The, uh, the jumping to Lindsay's death, which I know is a big plot jump. The oh, it is. I mean, one more thing while we're still on coffee, right? Right before he's about to die. Um, Page 292. Oh, wait, he died as of page 300? We have to talk about his death. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. 291 is what I have bookmarked. Yeah. Right. So, like, they're, they're, like, fighting in the little submarines. His gets fucked up and then falls into the pit and the pressure cracks the thing. Yeah. Right? A moment of lucidity, a moment of outrage at the fact that they had ordered him to do this. Why should I die for this? Why shouldn't I just once do what I want? No orders, no assignment, just what Hiram Coffee wants to do. And what Hiram Coffee wants right now is to live, is to hold this bubble in place, keep the water outside. What I want is to rise up out of the water, to breathe clean air under the open sky, see other people and not have to decide whether they're my enemies, decide whether to kill them or use them. What I want is to take mother by the shoulders and scream one last time into her face that she had no right to send me down here and then abandon me as if I never mattered at all after everything I did for her. Is so sad, actually. Similar stuff on 291, the the thing that ends mm-hmm. with where he's like, I saved your... He's, he's just thinking about civilians. And he says... Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I saved your lives. Every breath you take from now on is a gift from me because you would have been dead if I hadn't done it and I did it all for you. Yeah. I mean, these last moments where he's just like, what was it all for, basically? Yeah. I committed my whole life to the military, to my mother, for just so I could die at the bottom of the ocean having achieved nothing. But he is also giving um, himself... Although there is a point right before he dies where he's like, at least I got that bomb heading down there. Yes, yes, that's what I was going to say. Th- this mm-hmm. is a little different than his attitude about his mother, in my opinion, because his mother, he's really like, I did everything for you. You so you, you so uh, definitively left me behind um, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like, th- with the military, he's at least being like, You'll never knew what I gave to you, all you civilians, which is also him being like, I am a hero of the military. He's yeah. he's being like, I, I, I was the perfect lover, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, coupled immediately with like the builders watching it all and being like, oh, this is sad. Like, they really had to kill him. They really <laughs> felt they had to kill him. Um, that like... Lindsay, who we love and think is beautiful, like, she killed him. And Bud, who was like a connections builder, killed him. And why? Because coffee made them so afraid, because the fear was so unbearable that they would do anything to destroy whatever made them feel that way. And the builders, like, going back and forth with themselves, like, well, they tried to help him, didn't they? Yeah, but then they gave up and they killed him. So, like, this, this last moment where they're, like, teetering either way... And it's Bud deciding to go all the way down into the titular abyss. Sure. Um, that really makes the builders decide, like, okay, they're okay, actually. Yeah, when, when Lindsay dies, they they have their little, like, oh, no, death is real. Oh, shit. Oh, wait. We've actually mm-hmm. been looking at this the wrong way. Um, which is funny. It's funny to think of it as, like, an as a scientific find, right? Like, we don't really care that much about ants, so it makes sense mm-hmm. that like it would take a while for human civilization to be like, oh, they actually have this weird thing about their social structure. Hmm, I wasn't really paying attention yeah. to them. And like they like carry their dead home and put them in a pile. That's weird. Totally. And like 
the builders just never paid attention so they're like oh they like really die like for real whoa wow <laughs> i like that so since we're talking about Lindsay dying you know we're starting to whip mm-hmm. through the end we got past our boy coffee yeah, a scene where like jim cameron actually almost drowned <laughs> Oh, Ma- that Mastriantano, yeah. Mastriantano, like just almost killed her. Yeah, the 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 thing that I thought was daring about this uh, mm-hmm. is that Card takes the candles thing, which is in the movie, and is like the affecting emotional moment between uh, Lindsay and Bud, and he's like, I can plus it up. A lot of, A lot of times the novelizationist is like, let me take things that are like, not popping so much in the movie and make them like huge make them pop he's like you know that thing that fucking sings i'm gonna make it better and he kind of does (laughs) go on well i it's a huge passage i'm not gonna read the whole thing but just Lindsay reflecting on uh the relationship as she says all that she was thinking of the divorce papers oh well the candle thing is after they've brought her back that's when bud's going down yeah i'm i know oh okay Okay. Oh, we're, I just didn't know that we were going there Did already. Did I seg badly? Uh, maybe I segged badly. I thought we were... Um, what do you have between then and now? I don't know, I guess. I mean, I, I do think that, like, Lindsay's death, where she's doing, like, a brave thing, mm-hmm. and then she is so scared, is a, an amazing piece of, like, filmic storytelling. Okay. And, a, and great character beats, to be like, she is brave but this is scary and it's okay to have some weakness that and the way she like clings to him i don't know i guess i don't really have anything to say about it i was just shocked by how far forward we were going that he slaps her back to life you know like we didn't even mention (laughs) that (laughs) he screams at her back to life yeah and and one of the great things about that early passage i read uh i think from the perspective of the builders or something they set up in the book the idea of Oh, it's it's when everyone on the submarine dies and the builders are like, we're going to go get some of those memories because, mm-hmm. you know, that'd be nice. They really foreshadow that someone will be able to be resuscitated later because they describe how everyone on the submarine who yeah. did definitively die made it like minutes after their bodies stopped functioning. They were like still alive, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is cool. I guess I thought with this, when you brought up the candles thing, I thought you were talking about this thing, the very end of a chapter on page 300, where she is dead, and he is about to leave to swim back to the deep core, and he, like, takes the flashlight. Maybe they'd see him coming, see his light come down to the moon, and come down to the moon pool. Maybe they'd be ready, and that would save a few seconds, and those would be the seconds that would make the difference, that would allow him to pull her back out of the abyss. The abyss. That, like, coupling the concept of the abyss, the trench, with death, and also giving this little moment of, like, he is a light. He is bringing both a physical light, but, like, a metaphorical light Mm -hmm. that brings her back out of the dark, allows them to find him. That little... There's like four little things happening in a sentence that's essentially just like factual storytelling that I was very impressed with. Anyway, go ahead with your part about the candles. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's just, it's a tough book to discuss because half the time I don't have anything to say because I'm like, you're right, that ripped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, 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 but. So she says the candle thing and you just lit up another candle and put, put it beside mine and you said, no, see, that's me, that's me. And then after that bit of dialogue, it says, but what she was thinking of wasn't the lovemaking. She was thinking of the divorce papers. 
She was thinking of how she made a careful, intellectual calculation about their relationship, how it wasn't good for either of them. What did it matter whether it was always comfortable or easy or pleasant or fun? Just the fact that they had each other at all. That was good. That was so precious and rare. And yet she had decided to end it, break it off. She tried to remember why. Because she didn't need him, that's why. She was self-contained. She was complete in herself. Only that was a lie. From the very start it was a lie, and she knew it. She filed those papers because she was so afraid of needing him. Because she didn't believe. She really didn't believe that he would always be there. She was afraid that someday she'd look for him and he'd be gone. Only she knew now, and should have known before that, with Virgil Brigman, there wasn't any taking back. There wasn't any changing his mind. When he said, that candle's me, he meant it forever. He wasn't her father. She wasn't her mother. It didn't have to be like that. Two empty people living together in an empty house. She could let herself belong to him because he had already, completely, forever given himself to her. She was not going to leave him. There would be no divorce. If he came back from this, it would be forever. She'd grow up that much, at least, during these hours on the edge of death. Bud, she said, there are two candles in the dark. I'm with you. I'll always be with you. Bud, I promise that. Good plussing up. Yeah, fucking rips, man. End of this book made me pretty emotional. Gotta say. It's very powerful. Um... In the way that, like, Bud is drifting away, right? Like, mentally, physically, they may never recover any part of him. And it's, like, very evocative to have that from mostly Lindsay's perspective. Mm -hmm. That, like, all she's getting is, like, these typed messages. And it's, like, they're getting blurrier and smudgier. And then they go away completely. Right. And, like, for her to have to express both to him and to all of their friends... That she actually loves him. Yeah, the fact that she has to do um, it in front of everyone is 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 strangely powerful. It's it's yeah, it's very mm-hmm. affecting. Yeah, it really is. And that's that's the love that's gonna save humanity, you know? That like you can both be a strong individual and love someone completely. Uh, which is all the aliens wanted from us. And having a good partner is a huge part of what makes life worth living, right? And some for some people. <laughs> I mean, given this conversation, I don't, I don't want to say that being single is, like, no good. But, like, in the way that we were like, well, Coffee, like, wants to belong to someone. And he doesn't find that. Yeah. And it could be his teammates. It could be anybody in his life. It doesn't have to be a romantic partner or whatever. No, I was taking... But he doesn't find I was it. taking... I was laughing because it sounded like such sad sack stuff. It's such an important part of life <laughs> to have a good partner for some people. Well, I, I, I said it, and then I did, wanted to make it clear that I didn't mean that you can't be happy if you're yeah, single. Yeah, yeah, like, obviously, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. be happy and fulfilled if you're I single. Thought, I, it, I read um, it as like But you often being it's like, because you have other things in your life that make you feel complete. I read it as you being like, good work if you can find it. <laughs> I mean, it is, and I can't. But... <laughs> <laughs> this comes out in like six months. Who knows, who knows what reality is? Who knows? Is. I could be married by then. Oh, my God. <laughs> it would be fast, but it could happen. Hannah, we're, we've basically uh, blown through all the like passages I wanted to read. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't pick up on the key difference between the film and the book. You kept going on about how there's some huge difference, some huge deviation. Oh, for me, for me, what I found really like blah, 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 you're reading the book. I don't know if it's a deviation between the movie and the book that really, that's not what I meant. 
I think I texted you. This movie takes a bit. This book takes a big swing at the end. That really surprised me. You're talking about the and perspective the part, shift. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and read this. Shift, this is crazy. which feels fucking crazy. I don't want to read the whole thing because it's really long. Sure. But basically, the book has been in third person, essentially omniscient, and we have. As we have read, there have been there's little dips into first person when you're in somebody's real perspective. And then right at the end, I mean literally the last two pages of the book, the book suddenly is like, oh, this is a first person narration and I, Monk, have been telling you the story, referring to myself in the third person when I came up to it. Because the aliens took like the crew of this, the remaining crew of the ship and changed our DNA so that we experience life the way they experience yes. it. Sharing memories, sharing experiences and lives, holding the memories of our dead friends. And now I know all of this because I am basically a, a transformed, transcended human being um, in a way that is... Who do you think would win in a fight? <laughs> Monk or, uh, or I forgot the name. Of what? The transformer on the back of the satellite. Oh, uh, Soundwave. Soundwave. Who do you think would win in a fight? You said that Monk is transformed. Soundwave. Monk or Soundwave? Soundwave. Okay. Soundwave. Transformed. He's a giant Monk. robot. He became. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. A goopy alien, a bo- and Soundwave is a metal scary guy. Okay. So I think he'd probably do some pincing, and that would be that. Yeah. So that's the thing where I was like, "Whoa, why?" <laughs> Uh, it also goes on to be like, oh, you know, like now we can go to space. We can go to the deep sea. Like they've changed us so much that we can. But it's only us. They're not giving it to all of humanity. It's just, just us. Just the characters from it's the just... abyss. The abyss. It was really, really shocking to me. I don't need it. I don't want it. Um, it kind of like was so bizarre. And then it has to go back into the. It's crazy. The jarring. actual end of the story. The like it's really very, jarring. very jarring. To be taken out to like such to zoom out so wide to be like the history of humanity has changed in these ways, and then to have to zoom way back in to like Lindsay and Bud reuniting. Hello, Brigman. Hello, Mrs. Brigman. Two candles always separate but living always in each other's light. And you're like, yeah, that's the end of the story. Uh huh. What's this other junk? <laughs> like, it's it's very jarring to me. It's like this is an interesting idea for how to end your book. The, the perspective shift from third person to first, it's just straight up confusing. Like, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable as a reader to undergo, and it puts me too off <laughs> it's kilter. It's like breathing liquid. It, it puts me too off kilter to be like, oh, how beautiful. It, it feels like mm-hmm. one of those moments where somebody is writing prose as if they expect it will be filmed. And I, I think Card is, mm. is suffering from this because he knows he's going from a movie. So he's thinking in like a cinematic mindset, anywho. But this mm-hmm. seems so obvious that if you put this in a movie, even though it would be shitty in the movie, that it would mm-hmm. be a voiceover that suddenly happened in the style of like, these are the adventures of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I mean, for me, the main, like, the book itself has these, as we discussed, little dips of, like, authorial voice that are more personal. Mm -hmm. So that if the book at the end was like, here's what has happened to the royal we, humanity, as as an entity, Mm -hmm. 
And this is how we, humanity, have been changed by this encounter with aliens. I could maybe be okay with that, because it's coming from this, like, you know, omniscient, this other point of view. But because it's so much, this is Monk yeah. giving you this bit of information, it is... It, it, you're right. It's like it would have to be voiceover. Somebody has to say it. Who says it? We'll give it to Monk, <laughs> the best of the seals. And it's just, it's really, really weird. It's coffee at the end. And I you're wish like, I could just like, fuck. What? <laughs> it is really funny. I mean, not to go back, but like when coffee dies, the builders are like, we are not engaging with him. <laughs> we'll like scoop his memories, I guess, but yikes. Oh, geez. You really <laughs> fucked that kid up with the cinder block. Whoa. Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what a book for a corner store! Holy shit! Damn, kiddo, go to therapy. Hannah Blackman. Yeah, <laughs> you are you are the director of the film The Abyss. Your friend is looking for a book to read, and you say, mm-hmm. "Oh, I I know a a." a great book it's 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 about my film the abyss and and your friend says i'm not interested in the the shallow medium of the film novelization james what are you talking <laughs> about and you say no what you must understand is that this is not a a novelization of a film it's a it's a it's a text written in tandem the two feeding off each other to 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 better one another with their intellectual nutrients it's a novel of my film. It's a novel the of the film, if you catch yeah. my drift. Your friend mm-hmm. obviously doesn't catch your drift, but wants you to stop talking. Yeah. Would you recommend to him The Abyss by Orson Scott Card? Um, If he's never going to see the movie, then yes, I would recommend The Book of The Abyss. I think what I feel about this book is that I would rather watch the movie, but this is a good book. Right. And if you like science fiction and have any interest in, like, the story, you might want to read this book. But I don't think it... The stuff it adds... I mean, there's a lot of rich stuff in here. And in some ways, it's, like, beat for beat, dialogue for dialogue, the extended cut of the movie. So I, I sort of am torn because I kind of feel like it is... It's not like a supplementary text that would help you enjoy the movie more. It's just its own good thing, kind of like divorced from the movie. So I think if I was talking to someone who was like, I want to read something kind of science fiction-y and fun, I'd be like, oh, you should read The Abyss. It's good. But if someone was like, I love the movie of The Abyss, I wouldn't be like, you have to read the book. Does that make sense? Yeah. I really feel sort of like mixed about how to handle this. Not because it's like not a novelization, quote unquote, but like what it brings to its relationship with the movie, I find kind of limited in a way that I am having a hard time with, you know? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I don't agree with you at all, but I understand. No, I, I, didn't, I don't expect you to. I don't expect you to understand, I mean, or to agree with where I'm coming from. It I've been in this position before, but I, uh, but I think that your appreciation of this book, which you like, suffers yeah. from your relationship with the movie. I think so. This is what I'm saying. Is like I like the movie a lot, and I think the performances are really what I really like about the movie. Mm-hmm. The like I think Ed Harris, everybody's great. Michael Bean, of course, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. undeniable. And I mean, we didn't talk about this a ton, but I think that the coffee in the book comes across as a harder, meaner, scarier guy, definitely, than Michael Bean. And I kind of prefer 
the Michael Bean version. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I would recommend it to a certain person who wants to read a book, but not in relation to the movie The Abyss. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Andrew Overby, uh, you are a little rat boy. Hell yeah. Who works on a deep sea driller. And what's funny about this job is that when you go down, you have to spend eight hours in isolation compressing. Mm -hmm. But on the way up, it takes three whole weeks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to decompress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And during that time, you're like bored and your poor little rat is bored and you like want something to do. So knowing what you know now, would you pick up The Abyss by Orson Scott Card based on the screenplay by James Cameron to fill those three weeks and have you ever, for you and your rat? Have you ever gone scuba diving? One time and I almost drowned, so I'll never do it again. Wow. Some <clears throat> One thing that's that I feel like is like not talked about that much is if you go pretty deep, the, 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 the repressurizing or whatever it is as you come back up is so strange and boring because you'll like go down for an hour and be like, wow, that was a fun hour or an hour and a half, whatever. And then you, you, your dive computer is like, okay, I know you're 12 feet from the surface. You have to stay here for 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. That, like the spins. Yeah. Like kill you. The bends. Which the bends. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. The bends. It kills you. It, kills it can you. kill you. Yeah. It kills you. And that's that term is not scary enough for what it does. No. They should change that term. It bends you from to alive something scarier. to dead. <laughs> yeah, horrifying. So anyway, uh, what was yeah. I doing? I'm picking up a book while I'm in the chamber. Yeah, are you going to read The Abyss while you're <laughs> yeah. recompressing? I'm definitely going to gonna read it. Uh, I, I, I don't love the book's attitude towards Lindsay, but I love basically every other thing about the book. Right now, you know, things change, but right now I've got this ranked higher than Revenge of the Sith. I was thrilled every time I opened it. Part of it was that I had never seen the movie before. It just gave me everything I used to get from those Arthur C. Clarke, like, you it's know. science -y without being boring. Well, it's like hard in science in the sense. Cool. And, and, and it, would, it was working in multiple modes at once where it'd be like describing the alien's technology, and that was very hard science fiction. And then also like so much philosophical rumination on the part of the aliens uh, that's the thing that really felt like Arthur C. Clarke to me. I absolutely adored it. I, I had such a good time reading the book. And um, also, it has this Crichton-esque quality at times, where you're mm -hmm. like, I'm kind of learning about specialized things. Like, when mm -hmm. they would just... Real things, like UQC. Yeah. And hipness. Yeah, which I've always admitted were real. And... <laughs> um, no, just like the part of the beginning with the submarine and they, they send up the buoy and they talk about what the buoy is and how it's like the last gasp of breath for people who know they're dying. And you just walk away from that chapter going, I think I really learned about nautical America today. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, resounding uh, endorsement of this book. I hate the pretension in the back of it. I hate... <laughs> I hate the attitudes of the people who made it about mm -hmm. the medium of novelization ing, but I'm I'm not petty enough to be like, and therefore. It's just so damn good. It's so No, it damn is good. really good. It's really good. And Jim Cameron seems like a cool, nice guy, and Orson Scott Card does not. 
Yeah. So what can you do? Great. I think we've done a really good job on this episode of like saying that he's like a a meanie without like saying anything that's like actionably false or like could be could be hashed out in a court of law. I mean, what he has written in this text is pretty mean to women. Yeah. I mean, we didn't talk about one night at all, but she is essentially presented as not a woman. Yeah. Um, when she is. Um, Orson Scott Card, call us. We'll give you George Ryan's number. You guys can hang out. <laughs> to our listeners, please do rate our podcast while you're at it. Maybe review it, subscribe to it, tell your friends to listen if they aren't. Hard sell podcast about novelizations. Sometimes it's a listenable. But it's also about length. movies you like. Sometimes it's three hours long on a book you didn't read. Just get try yeah, and the sometimes pitch. it's more about the movie you watched. And sometimes like this, it's us reading passages from a book you didn't read. This is this if if we do For these like three in, hours. If we do these in recording order, it's gonna be very funny to have forty seven <laughs> Ronin, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, The Abyss. <laughs> just like a, a sandwich where the bread is just is solid gold and the and the meat is 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 poo it's a marshmallow sandwich agreed except the marshmallows are i mean tasty. i said the marshmallow is bad yeah but it's like light frothy it's nothing clear just to clarify the marshmallows taste really bad anyway but it is as light and frothy as a marshmallow we also have a patreon patreon.com slash authorized pod check it out <laughs> And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a famous piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you recognize what this is from. Hey, coffee, said Monk. What are you doing just standing at that nuclear warhead that we pilfered from the downed submarine from the beginning of The Abyss? Oh, I don't know, Monk, said coffee. I guess I'm just deciding between war... And peace. Good night. Okay, so Hannah, I have just finished editing the Abyss episode, and I, I do have a game for us. Exciting. Ooh, oh my gosh. But before I get to that, I, I do want to say, we texted about this a little bit, but for the listener, this episode was meant to come out sometime in mid-2023, uh, in the middle of the season four block, and we decided to release it uh, because of Avatar 2 oh, quite did? early. Nice. Yes, we did. And uh, it makes us sound completely deranged in a very specific way. (laughs) You and I sound like, because we're referencing episodes that haven't been recorded or haven't been released, you and I sound like we have a deranged taste in media and the (laughs) same deranged taste in media. (laughs) I can't wait. That sounds Without this disclaimer, someone would listen to this episode and be like, 
he references specific functions of a Transformer from the Bay movies, and she knows about it too. <laughs> These people are psychotic. <laughs> These people offhand go, you know in 47 Ronin when the villain? <laughs> <laughs> so a game. Okay, so many times in our uh, The Abyss episode, I thought that pieces of technology were fictional and invented by James Cameron when they were, in fact, uh, real pieces of technology. <laughs> that, that I exist. corrected you on, and you better not have cut out those corrections. I definitely did not. I mean, I, I cut out very little from this episode, given that I kept all of the Transformers <laughs> references and whatnot. Oh, my gosh. So the, the title I first went with was Tech or Drek. Uh, did James Cameron make up this technology? But I'm still torn. Which is better? Is tech or Drek good? Like, you get the concept of the game, right? Uh-huh. What's real, or what's not? real or no deal. <laughs> Ooh, funny, funny. Both are good. Both are good? Both are okay. good. Okay. Hannah, here's how this is going to go. We've never played a game where it's just you. So yeah. you get one Playing shot at myself. each. Exactly. You get one shot at each. You're playing against the house, so a point that you don't get is essentially a point that I get. Wow. Wow. There's just no pressure to race against other contestants, which I can take as kind long of as makes I it want. worse, though, because if you get it wrong after a ton of deliberation, you look I'm just an like idiot. a dum-dum. Well, I mm -hmm. look like a dum-dum pretty often anyway, so it's fine. Up first, is this technology tech or drek? I have a question before we begin. Mm-hmm. Um, are these all things from James Cameron movies or just movies at large? These are all James Cameron projects, okay. yes. Thank you, that helps me, <laughs> I think. Is this tech or Drek? And Hannah, I do need you to describe to the listener what we are looking at. Um, this is the thing in Avatar that's like a little necklace that's also like a voice transmitter. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um... I think this is tech that is not really good yet. But mm. in the future of Avatar, they've figured out how to make it good. This is tech. Fuck yeah. It's called a laryngophone. Cool. And it's basically the answer to all those complaints people have about action movies where they're like, how did the Avengers hear each other when they're talking all over New York City? like well they probably are wearing laryngophones which yeah or like in charlie's angels a molar microphone yes or a molar microphone <laughs> uh charlie's angels may be coming up on the podcast at some <laughs> point <laughs> who knows yeah essentially the the bone conducting headphones of microphones okay point to hannah up next is this james cameron creation real technology or not this is the titanic which is... Mm, maybe. What do you mean, maybe? What am I supposed to be seeing in this picture? I'm, I'm not, I'm just not confirming. What are we looking at, Hannah? We are looking at what appears to be the sinking Titanic, or a model thereof, for effect in the film Titanic, a James Cameron picture, um, which is... This feels like a trick, but it's tech. That's a real boat that really sank. This is, of course, tech. Thank this you. This boat was known as the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it was a it was a a ship that many said was unsinkable, but it was super sinkable. Yeah, after hitting an iceberg, it 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 did sink. So an mm-hmm. interesting little tidbit of history if you've never heard that before. Uh, you know, not everyone has. Point to Hannah. I recently got a super dope Titanic T-shirt that I'm thrilled about. By the Amazing. Way. What's the concept? It's like the poster. It's, no, no. Let me dig it out for you. Hold on. Okay, so the concept behind this T-shirt is that you are riding on the Titanic for the very first time, mm-hmm. and this is the White Star Lines Titanic. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's like it's it's a it's a hype shirt. Yeah. Southampton to New York maiden voyage sails April 10, 1912, and that could be you. You oh, so this it. is really not even a Titanic movie shirt. It's a Titanic no. the concept it's shirt. A, it's a, yeah, the concept. I bought it at the Molly Brown House Museum in Denver, Colorado. A woman who was famously on the Titanic. So far, anyway. Hannah with two points. The house yeah. with zero. Up next, <laughs> is this thing a real technology, or is it what we're calling Drek? Oh, the Terminator? <laughs> What are we looking at here, Hannah? We are looking at the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Looks like in T1. And I'm willing to say that even though some version of android robotics exists, the Terminator is Drek. This is, of course... No deal. Drek. Cool. Yes, uh, if, if, if this game were called Real or No Deal, which it isn't, <laughs> this would it's be a no, no deal. Uh, this is, and, and this is a little bit of interesting behind-the-scenes information so the terminator of course in the movie is a uh uh robotic killing machine disguised as a human man Mm -hmm. but actually this is a human man uh in the photo and his name is arnold schwarzenegger yes that's correct Mm -hmm. and so that's how they did looking very waxy though Mm -hmm. they did successfully make him look like maybe a doll come to life Mm-hmm. The trick is just a little sweaty. Yeah. Up next, Hannah killing it so far. Is this piece of technology tech or Drek? Oh, no. This is from Strange Days? Mm-hmm. Is that Script correct? by James Cameron. A movie I've never seen. Okay. And you don't even know the so concept So I don't know it. what this is. No, not really, no. Okay, I will give you the concept of Strange Days. Uh, because theoretically, if I gave you something from like the abyss and I was like fluid, you could breathe, it'd still be I hard know that to one. figure it. Well, but if you didn't, it'd be hard to figure it out. Oh, yeah. What am I looking at here? This is the, the concept of Strange Days is that there is a black market. This movie rules, by the way. You got to watch it. I know. I just haven't. There is a black market for memories. Uh, and so people essentially put these th- this thing called the squid on their head. And uh, they view other people's memories uh, and v- sort of vicariously live them out. Mm, that sounds like Drek to me. Mm, mm. So this I'm is, of course, go with that tech. Whoa! What? Yeah, because because uh, the thing is that uh, Ray Fine here is in a car, uh, which is Fuck a technology. You. That exists. Fuck you. <laughs> Straight um, to hell. No, no, it's interesting. I, I did a little reading on this invention. It was uh, invented by Carl Benz in 1888. And you first referred me. to as the motor This was wagon. a trick, and you should mm. go to jail for that. I don't really, That's I don't see cool, your argument here. Uh, okay, Hannah leading three to one. That's up fucked next. up. And I <laughs> Is this you. tech or dreck? <laughs> Okay, so this is also a Terminator. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. So I guess my question to you, Andrew, before you fuck me again. Uh-huh. Are you asking if the animatronic metal skeleton I'm looking at is real? Mm. Or mm. if the concept of a Terminator is real? Mm. I would just ask you whether what you're looking at is tech <laughs> or direct, I, I think is what so I would much. go with. Well, then I'm going to go with tech. Uh, because the metal animatronic skeleton is a real thing that moves, but it is not independently capable of doing murder like a Terminator. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to go with that it is tech. It is just unfortunate for me, okay. someone trying to trick you. <laughs> Good. You tried, but I got you. And once again, I, I, I think... <laughs> We're becoming like a really interesting behind the scenes podcast, but this is, of course, um, a practical animatronic from the Terminator films. And so it is a real technology and, and a bit of an actor in its own right. I think this is also a fun behind the scenes of I know you a little too well. That you <laughs> me once, I understand that there are tricks. Remember when the Rogue One game ended with like, this game was unwinnable, but you can use it to win other games. <laughs> You're doing it. I'm doing it. Uh, this is what Jen and Cassian and my best friends from Rogue Run would want for me. There is no way for me to win at this point, as there is only one more question, but I will ask it anyway. In a bit of a taste of real or no deal, is this the current successful marriage of James Cameron or one of his three marriages that ended. This is hard because I don't know what any of these women look like. I but was counting on it. That's on me. Um, <laughs> that's my bad. I, to be fair, I barely know what James Cameron looks like. Mm -hmm. That's so it him isn't on the left. sexism. Yeah, I figured that. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to do a little deductive reasoning to make a guess. Also okay. knowing that I only kind of know the dates of his various marriages. There's four. I thought there were like three. There's like, four. Damn, Cam. He looks a little older here. Mm. Not quite as old as he currently is. Mm. So I think I'm going to say that this is the second to most recent wife and not the most recent wife. Mm. Mm. But that's a guess, basically. Your logic is sound. Thank you. Though you are wrong because real this is the life. real marriage. Your logic Great. does stand up to scrutiny here, though, because yeah. they've been married 21 years. So okay. this is not a recent photo at all. I didn't know the dates of his various marriages. I knew that, like, the first two or... Well, I guess I should have known, because the first, like, three are in pretty fast succession. He just really bangs and a few out really And then he's really held quickly. on. Yeah. Well, I guess she, this one's the one. Yep, they got uh, married in 2001, and, you know, 9-11 just bonds people like that. Mm, happy for mm. them that's nice Make, makes you realize you know that things are worth working through do you think that um do you think that like Catherine bigelow is like oh you could stick it out with her huh you go through all the hard stuff with her and you quit on me like do you think there was ever any of that looking at this 20-year marriage definitely and i also think that that's just a very normal thing in life Sometimes you mm. learn in a way that breaks a relationship. And then you're like, well, unfortunately for my ex, I know now. <laughs> One resoundingly. I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like in our episode on the abyss, when I increasingly informed you of real technology. Yeah, that's true. That our, mm -hmm. our episode on the abyss is a bit of a three-hour game that I... <laughs> 
heinously lose. Yeah, you lost that one, you lost this one. What can I say?